please open your Bibles to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 23, and let's start today's live service, if we may. Thou shalt not raise a false report, put not thine hand with the wicked, to be an unrighteous witness, like the unbelieving Jews in the New Testament would lie about Jesus, would plot and plan with the Gentiles to overthrow the Lord Jesus Christ. The same would be true of the Apostle Paul. Many of his adversaries were of the same religion, same persuasion, and they came together to conspire against the Apostle Paul. Thou shalt not raise a false report. Don't lie. And for today we would say this, don't put false expenses in. We've had many scandals over the years concerning our parliamentarians. They put their uh, receipts in and they fabricate their receipts they claim that it would cost x amount to travel from a to b and they would claim the maximum amounts when there's only a fraction of the true amounts the same is true in brussels many meps are overclaiming expenses they are fabricating they are putting in false reports nothing new under the sun of course put not thine hand with the wicked to be an unrighteous witness so this chapter for the first four or five six or seven verses deals with character and we speak many times about doctrine and final authority and we speak about the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ but I remember speaking to a sister not long ago about character and conduct and she was absolutely right why we don't hear more uh, from preachers about character conduct and of course we should all be transparent we should all be open we should all be honest people unlike many of our parliamentarians or MEPs over claiming expenses being prosecuted and one a uh, member of parliament uh, was imprisoned for a period of time. Once politicians start to fall, and then pastors starting to fall, uh, starting to fall, and once that happens, the entire country's in a mess. I'm currently reading to the book of Jeremiah, and I'm up to chapter 11 now. And the first 10 chapters, it's condemnation, condemnation. Only Jeremiah and a handful of his peers were on the right track, on the right side of history, on the side of Jehovah, and yet every priest, according to Jeremiah, every prophet, every prince, according to Jeremiah, and I mean everyone without exception, had all gone south, just fallen apart at the seams. And that's why the Jews, the chosen race, went into Babylonian captivity. Slaves to the Gentiles. Absolutely humiliating. Thou, singular, shalt not raise a false report. Don't lie. And also, you find yourself in a court of law. Don't lie under oath. Put not thine hand with the wicked to be an unrighteous witness. Like, don't conspire. Don't plan in advance what you will or won't do. Be honest. Be transparent. Be upright if you can. I always like to say this to our non-Christian friends uh, when it comes to religious people. And we can all find faults in Muhammad and Buddha. We can find fault in the popes. We can find fault in ourselves. I can find fault in me. And I can find fault in you. That's, no, that's not really the issue. We all know about that. But when it comes to Jesus, you're going to really struggle to find fault in him. On one occasion, he would say, which of you convicted me of sin? Absolute silence. But if I was to say that, you'd all be laughing your heads off, I'm sure. Or if I was to say that about you, I'd be laughing my head off, of course. Look at verse 2. Thou shalt not follow a multitude to do evil. Neither shalt thou speak in a cause to decline, after many to rest judgment. Neither shalt thou countenance a poor man in his cause. Don't be partial, don't be biased, like in favour of a poor man, just because he is poor. Like the underdog mentality. You see a poor man, and you are biased many times towards him. 
in our town we have many homeless people and we've been witnessing to these people on and off for quite a while now and the last 18 months or so there's been an influx of homeless men and women some are pretty rough around the edges uh, they've got drink problems uh, drug problems and who knows what else and like I say we've been witnessing to them directly and indirectly for a period of time of course we're at the stage now where we don't uh, go any further we don't cast our pearls before swine but people looking from the outside uh, or people looking from outside of that circle of homeless people would probably be of the view that they deserve a break like a hand up but they've been given many breaks so don't be partial don't be overly biased when it comes to poor people just because they are poor thou shalt not follow a multitude to do evil don't run with a pack it's always easy isn't it to do just that to run with the pack when you were at school it was always easier wasn't it to go with the with the, with the pack to go with the crowd it's not easy it's not popular to stand alone most children want to be accepted they want to be in with the inner crowd and it's the same today if you are part of a community or a group or part of a system of some kind it's always easy isn't it to follow the crowd and in the context to do evil neither shalt thou speak in a cause to decline after many to rest judgment rest old english to mean twist or extort by violence for today we would say like wrestling rest wrestling two people fighting two people in a ring that's the picture here don't cause someone to speak evil to decline after many to rest judgment neither shalt thou countenance a poor man in his cause that word rest is found several times in the scripture go to second peter uh, chapter 3 Jesus would say, if you love me, if you love me, keep my words. John chapter 14, if you love me, keep my words. And yet, if you were to sit down with five of the most famous Christian celebrities in the world today, not one of those celebrities keeps the words of Jesus, because not one of those five celebrities believes that his words have been preserved. 15. An account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures, unto their own destruction. Go back to Exodus chapter 23. Rest like wrestle, rest like twist, rest like to extort by violence. If you love me. If you love me. Keep my words. And yet. If you don't believe me. Just contact any one of your favourite ministries. And ask them first and foremost. Do they have the words of Jesus? Do they believe that the words of Jesus have been preserved? And are they in submission to the words of Jesus? And they will say no. They will say there's no such thing as a perfect Bible. They will say that there are good translations. Or they will cite the most popular translations in the market today. But they haven't got a perfect Bible. No perfect Bible. And therefore, what is their final authority? Well, of course, they are their own final authority. 23.4. If thou meet thine enemy's ox or his ass going astray, thou shalt surely bring it back to him again. So for today, it'd be like this. You've got an enemy, somebody who you don't like, and you see their car rolling down the hill. I remember some years ago making a video with Patrick. and We parked up on a side road, not far from the open air pulpit, before it was my open air pulpit maybe a couple of years before I commandeered the open air pulpits and we were doing a video of some kind and the car wasn't completely uh, 
the brake wasn't completely on, basically. The handbrake wasn't pulled all the way up. And I watched the car starting to go down the road. And I ran, like I haven't run in probably 20 years. And I ran to get to the car because there's traffic coming up the road. I mean, just pitch this one moment. The car is going down a very busy road. Cars are coming up a very busy road. And five or six, maybe 10 seconds later, that car, our car, could have hit some of the oncoming traffic. And I had to run like a Usain Bolt, get to the car, jump into the car, and yank the handbrake up. But let's say that car was an enemy of mine. I haven't got any enemies, but let's say I had an enemy or so. And that car belonged to an enemy of mine. God would expect me to do the same thing. Almighty God would expect me to do the very same thing. Now, could you do that? Could you run to your neighbor's car? You don't like the guy particularly, or her. Could you do that? This is a commandment. Back in the Old Testament, intertestimonial, incidentally, and Christians, and I know Christians, they always say this, well, I don't do the big sins. I don't do the big stuff, and I occasionally do the small stuff, but could you do this? Could you do this? If thou meet thine enemy's ox, or his ass, being a donkey, going astray, your neighbor's car is rolling down a hill, thou shalt surely bring it back to him again. Could be your neighbor's car, motorcycle. You are expected to run, jump into the car or jump on the bike and stop the car, the bike, whatever it might be, from rolling away and crashing. <coughs> but of course here it's dealing with livestock. Because without any livestock, there's no livelihood. And without any livelihood, you simply starve. Look at verse 5. If thou see the ass of him that hateth thee, lying under his burden... And wouldest forbear to help him, thou shalt surely help him out. Same sort of a thing. You see the ass, you see the donkey of somebody that you hate, dislike, lying under his burden, he's collapsed, the weight is too heavy, and you forbear, you delay to help him, thou shalt surely help with him. But could you do that? Let's say you've had a huge argument with somebody you know, and that person lives a few doors down from you, for example, or over the road, or around the corner, and you see that they are struggling. And here, again, dealing with livestock. But we could compensate that to a vehicle or maybe a laptop. We all need our laptops, don't we? Or a mobile phone, for example. And they are struggling. And the laptop is about to burn out. Or the phone is about to crash. Could you step in? Would you step in? I'm not speaking about friends or family. That's automatically done. I'm talking about those who you don't like. Those that you hate. And it says, hateth, in verse 5. Could you do that? Could you put yourself out for that person? Don't get all high and mighty and say, but I don't do the big stuff. How about the small stuff? Paul says how we'll all have to appear, all have to appear before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account of ourselves to him. Things done in the body, whether good or evil. And you say, but this is back under the Old Testament. It makes no difference. It makes no difference. From Genesis 1 up until Exodus chapter 20, you've got grace from Exodus 20 right up until Acts chapter 2, you've got the law. From Acts chapter 2 right up until the rapture, you've got grace. But go back to the book of Genesis. I seem to recall that God would destroy Sodom and Gomorrah under grace. And he would flood the world under grace. And I want to expand a bit more on that this morning, if I may. One more time. Go back to verse 4. If thou, singular, aimed at a person, not the nation as a, as a whole, if thou meet thine enemy's ox... Or his ass going astray, thou shalt surely bring it back to him again. Enemy. Verse 5. If thou, singular, see the ass of him that hateth thee, he hates you, lying under his burden, 
back is almost broken, and wouldst forbear to help him, you hold back from helping him, thou shalt surely help with him. So you see it time after time, way back in the Old Testament, yes, under the law, but so what? Go back to Genesis. Many accounts back in Genesis, before the law, of good and evil, and God dealt with those people accordingly. Same would be so, under the law, and God would deal with those people accordingly, and same under the dispensation of grace. And I think of people like Ananias and Sapphira who were challenged, lied, and were basically put to death. Look at verse 6. Thou shalt not rest the judgments of thy poor in his cause. Now it's a flip side to verse 2 and 3. Verse 2 and 3, you're told not to show favoritism just because somebody is poor. And now you're told not to show disrespect or to be overly harsh on someone because they are poor. The way this book is laid out, you can't really beat it. God will judge you if you are unfair to somebody who is poor, and he will judge you if you are biased towards somebody who is poor. And most people think this, that poor people have had a raw deal, and poor people are going to be in heaven. That's not true. Many poor people don't want to be saved. Many poor people that we speak to on the streets, homeless people, don't want to hear the gospel. They're just as self-righteous as the wealthy people, the rich people. The flip side to that would be when the Lord Jesus Christ would say how it's easier for a rich man or it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into heaven. And that was a shock to the Jews because they thought that being wealthy was a sign of being prosperous and prosperous or prosperity was a blessing from the Lord. And he said, no, that's not the case at all. Many of the people that are wealthy today have made their wealth by walking on people, crushing people, cutting corners, going back to violating one, two, and also three. You may find the occasional wealthy person that has made their wealth the right way, but most people that have made their wealth over the years have done so by walking over people. The love of money is the roots of all evil. Six again, thou, singular, shalt not rest the judgments of thy poor in his cause. Twist, extort, be overly critical, too severe, basically. On the one hand, you were giving a guy a break because he was poor, and now you are going to come down on him like a ton of bricks. And both ways of dealing with unsaved people, or even saved people, would be condemned in Scripture. Look at verse 7. Keep thee far from a false matter, and the innocents and righteous slay thou not. For I will not justify the wicked. I looked at Rutman's reference Bible last night for verse 7, and Rutman made a lot of good points over his very long ministry, but he got this one wrong. He said basically that people are saved different ways during different dispensations. That's a common blunder from the Rutman camp. What I would say to try and meet him halfway is that God would dispense grace differently during different dispensations. That's obviously so. Noah didn't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Abraham didn't put his faith in the death, burial and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, obviously. Uh, Jeremiah like I said, I'm currently reading about Jeremiah, one in a million, he wasn't saved by putting his faith in the shed blood of Christ because they never heard of Christ. Christ is a title. Jesus is a name. But those guys that I've just mentioned were all saved by believing on a promise. Those men were all saved by walking with the one that gave the promise. And of course, we are saved by the one that gave the promise. So basically, it comes down to this, that grace, God's righteousness at Christ's expense, Yes, is dispensed differently from Genesis to Matthew, from Matthew to Revelation, obviously. 
For today, we are saved by putting our faith in the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. But for the Old Testament greats, they weren't told about the Lord Jesus Christ per se. It was all types and shadows. So when it says here, seven again, keep thee, singular, keep thee far from a false matter. Don't lie, don't be deceptive, don't be conniving, don't be acting inappropriately, have some character, have some class, going back to how Christians should be. And the innocent and righteous slay thou not. And also this term innocent and righteous slay thou not is also found in Jeremiah. In fact, keep your hand there. And I think it's Jeremiah chapter 2. Go to Jeremiah chapter 2 if I can remember this. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 2. The innocent or innocence is clearly stated in scripture. Uh, here it is. Jeremiah chapter 2, Jeremiah chapter 2, look at verse 34. Also in thy skirts is found the blood of the souls of the poor innocents. Abortions. Souls of the poor innocents. When a child is uh, conceived in its mother's womb, regardless of its gender, it has a soul. Body, soul and spirits. First Thessalonians chapter 5. And here, in reference to, I believe... Uh, a woman, verse 32, can a maid forget her ornaments? 34, also in thy skirts is found the blood of the souls of the poor innocents. I have not found it by secret search, but upon all these. Go back to Exodus. So the innocents, the innocent, the vulnerable, the uh, guiltless, if you will, are referred to as uh, being just that, innocents. On top of that, they have souls, and Jeremiah makes the case that those that abort, kill their babies, are guilty of murder. But here, Exodus 23, 7 again. Keep thee far from a false matter, and the innocent and righteous, going back to children that are aborted, slay thou not, don't kill them. Why not? For I will not justify the wicked. So Jehovah is quite simply saying this, he won't justify the wicked, he won't overlook what they have done. The soul that sins shall surely die. When Sodom and Gomorrah sinned, God didn't exonerate them, didn't justify them, but he destroyed them. When the flood came on the entire world, God didn't justify them, he destroyed them. This isn't dealing with salvation in the sense of everlasting salvation. At best, this is dealing with, with a temporary salvation, like making it throughout each and every day. So Rutman got this one wrong. But of course, Rutman was messed up on the dispensations. You can't be saved different ways during different time periods. It's either grace or it's not grace. But this is one of the errors that Rutman and some of his crowd got wrong and unfortunately continued to get wrong. And also he would say uh, that in the New Testament God would justify the wicked. He won't justify the wicked. He won't commend the wicked. Over the New Testament it says that there was a sin unto death. A Christian who sins and continues to sin and doesn't repent of his or her sin or sinning might, just might perhaps, be cut down and God will kill you. He's not going to justify you. He will condemn you. Yes, you're still saved, praise the Lord. But don't think that somehow back in the Old Testament you were saved. You were somehow saved by your faith and your works. That's a joke. That's a lie. And yet for the New Testament you're saved solely by grace, which is true. That's not how this thing works. So basically, justification doesn't have to mean justification in the sense of salvation forever, but justification can be 
in the sense of he won't overlook it and he will cut you down uh, for here and now if he had to, like Moses was cut down. Moses wasn't allowed to go into the promised land, was cut down, and yet he did go into the promised land. Back end of Matthew 16, transfiguration, Moses and Elijah appear. So Moses did go into the promised land, and so too did Elijah. And of course they will return for the tribulation. But let's not go off track. Verse 8, And thou shalt take no gift, for the gift blindeth the wise and perverteth the words of the righteous, the words of the righteous, if you love me. Keep my words. Do you have the words of God? And I'm going to say this, that if you're not a King James Bible believer, you haven't got the words of God, have you? You've got translations, so-called reliable translations, but you haven't got a perfect translation, have you? And if you don't believe me, just contact any one of your top Christian celebrities, ministries that you support, and ask them. Do they have the words of God? Are they preserved words? Do they have a final authority? And they will say no. They will say the Greek text, this, the Greek text, that. The NIV is a good translation. ESV is a wonderful translation. The New King James is a wonderful translation, etc., etc., etc. They haven't got the words of God. They are like a rudderless ship. Not saying they're not saved. Not saying they're not saved. But again, without the words of God, what have you got? You've got feelings, you've got traditions, and you've got basically your own will becoming the final authority. And thou, singular again, shalt take no gift. If you think of someone like uh, Elisha, who refused to take a gift. Peter refused to take a gift. Daniel refused to take a gift. Now, of course, Peter did a good thing and could have been rewarded, but chose not to. Elisha did a good thing and decided not to be rewarded. And so too did Daniel. Gifts, blessings, double honour. All found in the scriptures. Jesus Christ took gifts. Luke chapter 8. It says over in Luke chapter 8 how the women gave the Lord their substance. The apostle Paul took gifts. So be careful when it comes to rightly dividing the word of truth. But in the context, this is dealing of course with perjury. Like a backhander. Going back to parliamentarians in this country. MEPs in Brussels. Cooking the books. Booking their seats on the Eurostar. And apparently every Friday afternoon... At around, I think, 2pm or thereabouts, if they book their seats, they can claim something like 300 euros, 400 euros, whatever the cost may be for their train uh, back to their constituents. But if they get on board an hour earlier, they get to keep the outstanding amount. So I think roughly, what was it, 300 euros they save? They claim for 400 euros, but they only pay 100 euros for their seats on their trains. Nice little learner, isn't it? They've made 300 euros just like that. Or in the UK, if you are a member of the House of Lords, you turn up in the morning, you sign in at 10am, you get paid £300, £400, and a minute, two minutes, three minutes after 10, you just walk out. You sign out. You just sign out, walk out, and you've made yourself £300. And that's the bishops as well. And that's the bishops as well. Yeah. If that's what parliamentarians are doing in Britain and Brussels, what are they doing in your country? Take no gift... Verse 8, in reference to a bribery, a backhander, under the table. For the gift blindeth the wise. Well, of course it will do. And here, in reference to the wise, a saved person who takes a backhander, a saved person who takes a bribe, is going to be blinded and perverteth the words of the righteous. You start trying to cause a wise person to stumble. I think Judas Iscariot, so they was a bad man, 
Uh, he may have begun good, we don't know, but he ended bad. And on one occasion he said to himself this, I'm going to sell the Lord Jesus Christ out. And he picked his moment very carefully, like the brothers of Joseph uh, picked their moment very carefully. And of course from the <coughs> betrayal of Joseph resulted in the salvation of the world. Because of course Joseph was the prime minister of Egypt. Egypt is a type of the world. With the betrayal of Jesus came salvation to the entire world. Joseph saves his people, Old Testament. Jesus saves his people, New Testament. You meant it for evil, Genesis chapter 50, but God meant it for good. Romans eight twenty eight. all things work together for good to those that love God, to those which are the called according to his purpose. Even a saved person who goes south, who is doing what they should not do, like 7 and 8, and perhaps verse 6 as well, even when a Christian goes south, God can still use that for his own glory. We don't quite understand that. But basically, you've got the sovereignty of the Lord and the free will of man somehow running side by side. But I'll tell you something. If you go down this route of taking gifts, backhanders, verse 8, uh, when you shouldn't, or if you get caught up with being unfair to a poor person, verse 6, or slaying an innocent or righteous person, verse 7. And don't forget, Jesus said that, uh, that if, you are, if you had unjust anger... In your heart, you were a murderer. Or he said, if you looked to lust after a woman, you had already committed adultery with her in your heart. You can't get around this book. This book will condemn you. You're banged to rights, basically. But when a Christian goes south, when a Christian starts to violate basic principles, found in verse 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8, and we'll close on verse 8 today, when a Christian starts to violate these principles, he or she will lose their testimony. He or she's character will be diminished. He or she will have nothing to offer the world. The world will see you as a worthless Christian, will enjoy rubbing their hands with glee that you've fallen, or that you've stumbled elsewhere. Paul would say uh, to be careful that you don't fall, that you don't stumble. Just because for the here and now you've got things sorted out and you haven't yet, you haven't yet, you haven't yet committed the big sins. But how about the small sins? Like your enemy's vehicle rolling down a hill or your enemy's dog or cat needing your assistance or for the old testament your enemy's donkey or ox needing assistance and you decided to sit back and allow it to just disappear basically or run away or become sick or even worse collapse and die and god sees that he will deal with you for that and like i say if you're not careful you are going to lose your testimony your character will be shredded and if you continue down that route Arrive at the judgment seat of Christ, ashamed, barren, all your works will be burnt up. You're still saved, but no legacy. No legacy. And for many Christians, that'll be just horrific to have to experience. And just a very quick PS, it should be obvious that your works can't save you. Nobody's works can save them based on what we just looked at this morning. You go one way, you are commended. If you go another way, you are condemned. It's very difficult to get the balance right. So basically it's going to be grace from the beginning to the end, from creation to the cross, from the cross to the rapture, from the rapture to the end of the tribulation, and from the beginning of the millennial reign to the end of the millennial reign. It's always been grace, but of course it's been dispensed differently by Almighty God to different people during different time frames, but it's still grace. It has to be grace because we can't save ourselves and our works could never save us. That's why the scripture is laid out in such a way that you can't make it any other way. 
You come to the cross, you come to the Lord broken basically and he will save you and keep you saved. Yes, you walk a particular way and your works will follow, but don't trust your works. Don't ever trust your works during any dispensation to save you because the moment you do that, you are condemning yourself and also causing others to stumble. So we are looking at the second book in the Old Testament, being the book of Exodus, of course. And the context is very simply concerning the Jews that have left Egypt, which of course is a type of the world. And they are en route to enter into the promised land. And last week we looked at the first eight verses concerning what to do when they would arrive in the promised land. And also from verse 7, the innocent wouldn't just be in reference to the unborn, of course, but people in general that were caught up or became victim or victims of an incident Uh, but strictly speaking if you cross-reference it to Jeremiah chapter 2 it would of course be in reference to the unborn also we looked at 2nd Peter chapter 3 uh, concerning apostates heretics unsaved people wrestling twisting the scriptures to their own damnation and for the Old Testament it was imperative to be transparent to be honest and above board as much as would be possible, of course. So let's start today's service, if we may, in Exodus chapter 23. Exodus chapter 23. Look at verse 9, if you will. Also thou shalt not oppress a stranger, for ye know the heart of a stranger, seeing you are strangers in the land of Egypt. So for the Jew that was going into the promised land, it was imperative not to uh, get the whip out, not to crush the Gentile physically or spiritually, turn it around, It would be imperative for the Gentile in the New Testament era not to crush the spirits of the Jew physically or spiritually. At the turn of the 20th century, there was a man called John Lewis in the UK. And John Lewis had come from poverty, made a lot of money. Some would suggest he did so off the backs of his people. But there's always more to the story uh, than when when first meets the eye. And basically, John Lewis made a lot of money and uh, in a short period of time was a multi-millionaire. And he had a son, and his son uh, was more fair, shall we say, more honest, shall we say. And basically, the two Lewises worked very closely together, making money. Uh, This is back in the era of Selfridge, uh, Debenhams, Harrods, early 20th century. And uh, as old man Lewis got nearer to retiring, his son was the heir in waiting. And basically, the son of Lewis Sr. decided to... Uh, be more fair, shall we say, and he decided to turn the business into a cooperative. Never happened before or since. And basically, Lewis Jr. had two books. He had the official books, which he would show his father, and he had the unofficial books, which he would keep for himself. Now, strictly speaking, Lewis uh, Jr. was lying to his father, because, of course, if you withhold uh, truths (coughs) or information back from people, you are technically lying. In fact, I'm currently reading through the book of Jeremiah, and on one occasion, the king of Judah is speaking to Jeremiah, and he says to Jeremiah, when the princes ask you why you are here and what we are speaking about, tell them A, B, and C. Don't tell them the whole story. And of course, lo and behold, the princes walked into the room and said to Jeremiah, what are you doing here? And Jeremiah pretty much did what the king told him to do. Economical with the truth. That's lying. Jeremiah was lying. Saved man, good godly man in heaven today, but he was lying. He was partial with the truth. Look at 9 again. Also, thou shalt not oppress a stranger. The Jew wasn't allowed to oppress the stranger, being a Gentile. For ye know the heart of a stranger, seeing you were strangers 
in the land of Egypt. Go to Jeremiah 34. Jeremiah 34. Uh, so with the two Lewises working together, the old man got older and eventually died. His son replaced him and, like I say, offered his employees a chance to buy in to the company. And it became a huge success. And to this day, if you work for the Lewis family, it's now a corporation. I think the family have all died out. But if you work for John Lewis as a company, you get good money. You get shares in the company. You have a stake in the company. But old man Lewis wasn't made aware of that. Old man Lewis was a capitalist through and through. His son was a socialist. Jeremiah 34. Jeremiah 34. Uh, Look at verse 8, if you will. This is the word that came unto Jeremiah from the Lord. After that, the king Zedekiah had made a covenant with all the people which were at Jerusalem to proclaim liberty unto them, that every man should let his manservants and every man his maidservant, being an Hebrew or an Hebrewess, go free, that none should serve himself to them to wit of a Jew his brother. So Nebuchadnezzar is on the move, a Gentile, and Jehovah is preparing the people to go into captivity because, again, the main sin in Scripture is idolatry. And here, those that owned Jews, going back to Exodus 22, were now to release them. They were to relinquish them. Look at verse 10. Now when all the princes and all the people which had entered into the covenant heard that every one should let his manservant and every one his maidservant go free, that none should serve themselves or them any more, then they obeyed and let them go. So far, so good. But afterward, verse 11, they turned and caused the servants and the handmaids whom they had let go free to return and brought them into subjection for servants and for handmaids. They would renege on this commandment to let the people go. This is a common theme, not only in scripture, but in society. If you go back to the 19th century, 20th century, you had people like Karl Marx coming along saying how the labourer was worthy of his hire quoting the New Testament, of course, and Karl Marx and, uh, who was his uh, sidekick? Ingalls. Ingalls, worked very closely together, like Darwin and Huxley. Always come in twos, don't they? Lauren and Hardy. But anyway, let's not get off script. And uh, these two guys, Karl Marx and his uh, buddy, Ingalls, worked very closely together. Uh, Of course, Karl Marx never worked a day in his life, but the point was quite simply this, that the labourer was worthy of his hire. You had people working six, seven days a week, 14, 15 hours a day. You had children working underground and uh, the bosses were getting richer and the poorer were getting poorer. Of course, never forget that these people were never forced to work in such conditions in the first place. They went for an interview and uh, when they were interviewed for that position, going back to John Lewis I, they agreed. They signed up for the contract. Like when you go for an interview today, you sit down with your potential employer and he or she offers you the terms and conditions you can walk away. But what happens? People sign on the dotted line and after they pass their probation period, they start to rot the boat. They demand more equal rights. They demand to be able to wear their own clothes. They demand this. They demand that. And over sometimes decades and centuries, employers end up having to surrender. A bit like Lewis Sr. He had no idea what his son was doing. His son was, strictly speaking, deceiving him. Every week, Lewis, Jr. and Sr. would meet for a board meeting and Lewis would bring the official books to show his father how much money they were making, an absolute fortune at the turn of the last century, and unofficially, of course, books that only Lewis and his chief of staff uh, were able to see reflected a very different side of events. More stores were opening up and that went on for the next, what, 50, 60 years? 
I think Lewis Jr. died in the 1970s. But that's a cooperative. That's a cooperative. You won't find many people that do that today. But for the Jews back in the Old Testament, slavery was permitted because at times people got, got themselves into debt, had to pay back the debt. How else could you pay it back? There's no welfare system. So therefore you would be sold into slavery. Jump over to verse 17 from Jeremiah 34 still. Therefore thus saith the Lord, you have not hearkened unto me to proclaiming liberty every one to his brother and every man to his neighbour. Behold, I proclaim a liberty for you, saith the Lord, to the sword, to the pestilence, and to the famine. And I'll make you to be removed into all the kingdoms of the earth. Here are the consequences for the Jews' behaviour, of course. 19. The princes of Judah and the princes of Jerusalem, the eunuchs and the priests, and all the people of the land which passed between the parts of the calf, I will even give them into the hand of their enemies, and into the hand of them that seek their life. And the dead bodies shall be meat unto the fowls of the heaven, and to the beasts of the earth. So the Lord is very fair when it comes to dealing with his own people. And remember this, that Jehovah is dealing with the Jews, his covenant people, under the law. But these verses once again deal with the consequences of, first and foremost, the Jews not releasing their slaves, because they're going to become slaves themselves, from the top to the bottom. Real slaves are going to be at the, or they're going to enjoy Nebuchadnezzar's uh, company, if you will. In the UK we say, such and such is serving time at his majesty's pleasure. If you go to prison, and here they're going to serve time at Nebuchadnezzar's pleasure. Found over in Jeremiah, uh, Jeremiah 34, 8 to 11, and Jeremiah 34, verses 17, 19 to 20. Go back to the book of Exodus one more time. Verse 9. Also thou, singular, this is aimed at people, not to the nation per se. Also thou shalt not oppress a stranger. Don't keep the Gentile down. And for today, the Gentile, don't keep the Jew down. Give everybody a crack at the whip. I believe in that. I do believe in equal opportunities. I believe that if two people apply for the same position, they should both be offered the same salary. I believe in that. But that's not what happens now. There's a story in the paper this week of a white middle class boy a young man who applied to be a police officer in, I think it was Cambridge, from memory, and his father works for the police force, been there 27 years, and this young man went along for an interview. He wasn't homosexual, he wasn't transgender, he wasn't black, and they turned him down. Two years later, this young man has been suing the police, and lo and behold, he's won. And the tribunal said he was discriminated against, because he wasn't the right colour. He wasn't the right sexuality. He was a heterosexual, you see. Haven't times changed? You've got white middle-class people now punishing, penalising other white middle-class people, heterosexuals, because they don't fit a certain criteria. For you know the heart of a stranger, seeing you are strangers in the land of Egypt. So the Jew had to be very upright, transparent, like I say, had to be fair, had to uh, give a good impression, the most purest Jew was, of course, Jesus Christ. It's always very difficult, isn't it, to find fault uh, concerning Jesus Christ. Verse 10. And six years thou shalt sow thy land, and, and shalt gather in the fruits thereof. But the seventh year thou shalt let it rest, and lie still, that the poor of thy people may eat. And what they leave, the beasts of the field shall eat. In like manner thou shalt deal with thy vineyard, and with thy olive yard. So six years, picturing the amount of time that you could purchase a slave, and then the seventh year came around, he was to be released, or she was to be released, unless, of course, they wanted to stay under the ownership, the 
authority of the slave owner. But here, it's dealing with the land, which you could spiritualize to uh, the history of the world. We are currently, what, 6,000 years into creation. We've got a 1,000 years of rest coming, referred to as the millennial reign. And during the 1,000-year reign, the whole world is resting. Those that are redeemed, of course. The unsaved are in hell, waiting their judgments. And six years, thou shalt sow thy land, singular, and shalt gather in the fruits thereof. Workers working, unlike Karl Marx. Karl Marx never worked a day in his life. Uh, Karl Marx had, I think, five or six children. Some of his children starved to death because he was too busy in the pub with his friends drinking. He got very bitter with the world, a bit like Charles Darwin. One of his kids, or maybe two of his kids, died prematurely. Of course, he's a flip side to Karl Marx, and he too got very bitter with society, but also with God. Karl Marx came from a very religious family. His father was a rabbi. Charles Darwin came from a religious family, went to Cambridge, got his BA in theology, and yet, according to those that wrote about Darwin, never once opened his Bible a day in his life. Both Marx and Darwin lost their children. Not all of their children, but I think a couple each from memory. Got bitter, got twisted. Karl Marx wrote Das Kapital, picked up by Joseph Stalin, and of course the rest is history. Mao Zedong also picked up Das Kapital, and the rest is history. I mean, just study China sometime. Study uh, Russia sometime. There's a story that I was sent to read yesterday about Hong Kong. Hong Kong is holding back on LGBT rights because there's pressure from Beijing. Put it to the people. Let the people have a vote. We've never had a vote in this country for any of the legislation that's been passed over the last 45, 50 years. But don't get me started. Verse 11. But the seventh year thou shalt let it rest and lie still, that the poor of thy people may eat. I looked at Hoffman's Reference Bible a few days ago. I always like to consult the reference Bibles that I've got on my bookshelf. And it's always very interesting what different people say about these particular verses. And Hoffman makes the mistake uh, a bit like Ruttman did, and we talked about that last Sunday, how the poor were also expected to work on the land. But you weren't told that. You weren't told that. It says that those that were working the land were to do so, but the seventh year, let it rest, don't overtill the ground. And as a result of that, how the poor people may eat. That's what the text says. Don't go beyond the text. Just because you are against socialism, that's fair enough, or capitalism, if you are against capitalism, I suppose some people are, or communism, don't allow your prejudice to cloud your judgments. Read the Bible. Let it speak for itself. Now, elsewhere, it will say, if you don't work, you don't eat, fair enough. But here, it doesn't say that. You've got to watch some of these guys. They may be King James Bible believers, but that doesn't mean they always get it right. Sometimes they get it wrong. On top of the poor people enjoying the fruits of the land, what they leave? The beasts of the field shall eat. There's enough to go around for everyone. In like manner, thou shalt deal with thy vineyard. And with the olive yard. So there's enough food to go around the world three times over. I'm sure we all know that. There's no reason for people to be starving anywhere in the world today. There was a report put out by the UN. I think 15 years ago. Which said just that. There's more than enough food to go around. There's no excuse for people to be starving. To be struggling. To be uh, experiencing droughts or what have you. Yes there are parts of the world. Uh, parts of the world which are really up against it. But many times, that's due to sin. There's enough food to cover the globe three times over. But the warlords, the barons, the powers that be, want to make a huge profit 
and therefore, a bit like Lewis Sr., wouldn't allow and don't allow the poorest to get a fair crack at the whip. Of course, there's problems with all these systems, you understand, whether socialism or uh, capitalism, but at the end of the day, due to man's greed, going back to Genesis chapter 6, how God saw the hearts of man, that they were only evil continually, that's the main reason why there are so many people in the world today that are struggling. And of course, you've got laziness, you've got people who are bone idle, you've got people who don't want to do anything, they want to just take and not give. But 10 and 11 deal with the land. 10 and 11 makes the argument that people should work. And on top of that, how the poor are able to benefit from the land itself. God would bless the land, but also there's a curse on the land. Going back to Genesis chapter 3, how the land is cursed due to the fall of Adam and Eve. And on top of that, the beasts, the animals, the livestock are also going to benefit from the land. But on top of that, you don't want to, you don't want to overwork, overtill the land. Look at 12. Six days thou shalt do thy work, and on the seventh day thou shalt rest. We need that. Back in the Old Testament times, going into the New Testament times, a typical working week was six days, 12 hours a day, six days a week. That's pretty punishing, but that was pretty typical during biblical times. And the seventh day, which of course would be the uh, Sabbath, Friday sundown until Saturday sundown, was a period of rest. Now for today, we have the Lord's Day, which is still... A day in the UK where most people don't work. The supermarkets are now open from 10am until 4pm. And they go beyond that. They are penalised. But most people in the UK are happy to have a day's rest. A day's break. But I get thinking about this sometimes. And I get thinking about how the devil has worked over the last 45-50 years. If not perhaps more. First of all he messed around with the Bible. He put doubts in the minds of people that the King James couldn't be trusted. That it was flawed. That it had errors and of course people like Westcourt, Westcott and Hort came along and started to muddy the waters and since then every seminary, every church, every system and I mean every one of them no longer teaches the King James Bible. You'll hear holiness people say uh, if you love me John chapter 15 uh, keep my commandments they always preach that don't they but they don't say if you love me keep my words John chapter 14 isn't that interesting. You never hear that preached, do you? It's always, if you love me, keep my commandments. And you expect and you are to assume that these good, holy, righteous men, whether Calvinist or Arminian, are keeping the commandments of the Lord. Of course, you ask them to define what the commandments of the Lord are. They can't do that. Or they run back to the Ten Commandments, which we spent 18 weeks going through. The commandments, just for the record, from John chapter 15, I found over in 1 John. 1 John chapter 2, 1 John chapter 3, and 1 John chapter 4. But how about keeping the words of the Lord? If you love me, keep my words. That the devil was able to get in there. He was able to destroy people's faith in the King James Bible. Then he got into the home back in the 1950s, 1960s. And he said to women, go back to work. Leave the family home. Start working. You, you are losing out. Your life is being wasted. And as the serpent was able to beguile Eve, so the serpent was able to beguile women all over the world. And by the 1970s, most women in the West were working, having affairs, having relationships. The husbands were many times unaware of it. Fast forward to the present time, 90% of women in this country with children are now working 45 hours a week. Their kids are being raised by professionally trained and also paid professionals like uh, teachers, nursery assistants. The family's being destroyed. Most women are forced to go out to work. And if they don't work, they are made to feel like second-class citizens. It's very rare to meet a saved woman who doesn't 
do a secular job, who's happy to stay at home and allow her husband to go out and work. That's almost unheard of now. I think in all the years I've been saved, I've only met one woman who stays at home while her husband goes out to work. Only one woman. And what was strange about that particular woman is that she had no children, had no kids. The pressure was on the women to go into the workplace, leave their children in care or in nursery for the day or school or what have you, do a 50-hour week, which is typical, or maybe 40-hour week, is probably a typical working week for women in this country, and then come home and just collapse and go to sleep. That's really where the devil is now. And now what we got? LGBT. That's the new flavour of the month. Get a couple of kids, allow two women, or get a couple of women, I should say, allow a same-sex couple to adopt a child or children, or a couple of guys to adopt a child or children. Nobody says a word. Nobody says a word. No referendum. No, let's put this to the vote. It's the same sort of a thing. But again, don't get me started on that. Verse 12 again. Six days thou shalt do thy work. For the Old Testament, uh, men would work, sometimes women. When Paul started preaching, he met Lydia. He met uh, Dorcas. That was Peter, of course, who met Dorcas. They had their own businesses. That seems to be the exception, of course, for the New Testament. Women, women that got saved having their own businesses. I don't think there are any women in the New Testament who went out into the world and worked. If they had husbands, of course. We are to assume that Dorcas and Lydia had no husbands, so it's somewhat different. But if you were a saved woman back in the first century, Paul says from First uh, Timothy chapter 5, is it? You are to stay at home, be a housewife, raise the children, look after your children, be a grandmother. Of course, that's not fashionable, is it? There's so much pressure now on women to capitulate, to leave the family home, allow strangers to raise their children. And on the seventh day, thou shalt rest. Put your feet up, worship the Lord. Look at this, that thine ox and thine ass may rest. Not just for your benefit, it's for the livestock as well. And the son of thy handmaid and the stranger may be refreshed. This is wonderful. Jehovah, first of all, wants his people to rest, to worship him. And for today, this is Sunday, a day of rest. He wants the animals to rest because if you overwork them, they will just collapse and die. And he wants the handmaids, the women, and the stranger, a Gentile, probably a man, to also be refreshed. So there's three benefits for the Sabbath, for the Old Testament, going into the New Testament. For today, Sunday is the Lord's Day. It's still officially a day of rest, and yet most people are expected to work on Sundays and no longer get double time. Look at verse 13. And in all things that I have said unto you, be circumspect, like take heed, like be aware, and make no mention of the name of other gods, neither let it be heard out of thy mouth. Now I've been thinking about this verse for the last couple of weeks, and note verse 13. 13, of course, is always synonymous with the occult, with the devil, like Friday the 13th. But I've been thinking about this verse, and it does interest me. In fact, it probably intrigues me more than it interests me. Make no mention of the name of other gods, neither let it be heard out of thy mouth. Keep your hand there and go to Jeremiah again. Jeremiah uh, chapter 44. I'm going to suggest this. I'm going to suggest this. Don't even speak in jest uh, concerning false gods. And you ask me why? Well, because... Unclean spirits are affiliated to such. We've all done it. We've all made fun of false gods. We've all mocked Buddha. We've all mocked Muhammad. We've all mocked Allah and Mary, the Queen of Heaven. Uh, 
but I'm not sure it's a very wise thing to do, and I'll show you why. Uh, Jeremiah 44, uh, Jeremiah 44, uh, look at verse 3. Because of their wickedness, which they have committed to provoke me to anger, in that they went to burn incense and to serve other gods, whom they knew not, neither they, ye, nor your fathers. Incense was a custom back in the Old Testament concerning Jehovah, and there's always a counterfeit of it for today, the Church of Rome like to burn incense, offer incense. I went to Mass many times growing up. I was raised a Catholic until 17 years ago when I became a Christian and I went to Mass. I served Mass. And if you were a member of the Latin Mass or the Tridentine Mass, which was changed up until the mid-1960s, up until the mid-1960s, the full Tridentine Mass was the main point of the Catholic system. The priest would stand with his back to the congregation, would conduct the Mass in Latin. Most uh, Catholics had no idea what he was talking about. Unless, of course, you were an older Catholic and were taught Latin at school. I wasn't taught Latin at school. I was taught uh, French and German. Latin wasn't really on the curriculum. But here, you're back in the Old Testament. You've got the Jews counterfeiting what they should have been doing. Because of their wickedness, which they have committed to provoke me to anger. To provoke me to anger. In that they went to burn incense and to serve other gods, whom they knew not, neither they, ye, nor your fathers. Howbeit, verse 4, I sent unto you all my servants, the prophets, rising early and sending them, saying, Oh, do not this abominable thing and that. I hate, I hate it. Don't do it. Prophet after prophet was sent to the children of Israel, calling them back from this wickedness. And again, the main sin in scripture is idolatry. Jehovah would put up with adultery fornication all the kings did it maybe some of the prophets too he would overlook that of course that'll be dealt with at the judgment seat if you're saved for today and for the jews great white throne judgment but the sin of idolatry is a shady subject and down the line we will look at aaron israel's first high priest and ponder the thoughts as to whether or not aaron was even saved i wonder sometimes Going back to Jeremiah very quickly, I've been reading Jeremiah, I finished it last night, then I went into Lamentations, finished that last night, and tonight, Lord willing, I start Ezekiel. I like to read the Bible through at least once a year. I think that's the least we can do as Bible believers. People bled and died for this book, and we should be reading it each and every day. Uh, Just a few verses, if you haven't got lots of time, a few chapters. You said I haven't got time, you have got time. You read the newspapers, don't you? You speak to people on the phone, don't you? You speak to people on Skype, don't you? You get the bus in the morning, get the train in the morning. You have a lunch break, don't you? You brush your teeth in the morning, don't you? You comb your hair in the morning, don't you? You iron your trousers or your blouse or your skirt. Put your socks or shoes on, don't you? There's time to read the Bible. And if you can't read it, you can listen to it, can't you? There's always time. There's always time. The average person in this country spends 37 hours a week watching television. 37 hours a week. Just a quarter of that would allow you to read the Bible through once a year. Do not, do not, going back to thou shalt not, do not this abominable thing, this abominable thing that I hate. But they hearken not, verse 5, nor inclined their ear to turn from their wickedness, to burn no incense unto other gods. This is the Jews under the law, Jehovah's people, ignoring him. They've got free will, of course. We've got free will. That's why there's going to be a judgment seat of Christ, the beamer seat. He's going to be seated. People are going to be summoned into his presence. Also got the great white throne judgment, the books are open, so on and so forth. But they hearken not, nor inclined their ear to turn from their wickedness. That's repentance after you are saved. Quit sinning. 
and start doing right before you are saved. Quit not believing in God and believe on him. Acts chapter 20 says repentance towards God in the context of accepting there's only one God and faith in Jesus Christ. Put your faith in his finished work on the cross. You can get that, can't you? There's no difficulty when it comes to repentance or salvation. Don't allow these Calvinists or these Arminians that push lordship salvation to cripple you. It's a free gift. If you love me, keep my words. But who does keep the words of the Lord Jesus Christ? Who keeps them? Does Paul Washer? Does John MacArthur? Does James White? Ask them sometime. Email those guys. And say to them, do you keep the words of Jesus? Where are the words of Jesus? Can you show them to me? Can you show me a perfect Bible? They can't. I've got their books. I've got their reference Bibles. I've read their books. They don't believe in a perfect Bible. They become their own final authority. Look at verse 6. Wherefore my fury and mine anger was poured forth and was kindled in the cities of Judah and in the cities of Jerusalem. And they are wasted and desolate as at this day. Peter says how judgment begins at the house of the Lord. 7. Therefore now thus saith the Lord, the God of hosts, the God of Israel, wherefore commit ye this great evil against your souls to cut off from you man and woman, child and suckling out of Judah, and to leave none to remain, in that ye provoke me unto wrath with the works of your hands, burning incense unto other gods in the land of Egypt, whither ye be gone to dwell, that ye might cut yourselves off, and that ye might be a curse and a reproach among all the nations of the earth. Idolatry, worshipping false gods, deities, on the one hand, pretending to worship Jehovah, while on the other hand, worshipping false gods, you can't serve two masters. And yet that's what happens time after time, back in the Old Testament. They wanted to stay in with Jehovah, if you will, while worshipping their false gods. Look at verse 15. Then all the men which knew that their wives had burned incense unto other gods, and all the women that stood by a great multitude, even all the people that dwelt in the land of Egypt in Pathros, answered Jeremiah, saying, As for the word that thou hast spoken unto us in the name of the Lord. We will not hearken unto thee. We don't care who you are, Jeremiah. We won't listen to you. We know that you are who you say you are. Going back to John chapter 3. We know you've come from God, Rabbi. And Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. They knew who Jesus was. They knew who he was. And this crowd knew who Jeremiah was. There was no doubt as to Jeremiah's credentials. There was no doubt to Jesus' credentials. But the heart is desperately wicked. Even after you're saved. And that's why Paul says to read the scriptures. To renew your minds. Each and every day. That's why I'm reading through the Old Testament. And like I say tonight. Lord willing. I will arrive at Ezekiel. But here. 15 again. This is always interesting to me. Read it carefully. Then all the men. Which knew that their wives had burnt incense. Unto other gods. Women are in the driving seat. Women are very religious. Even today, most churches are run, or I should say most, most churches are led. Mm. Or let me clarify that most churches are dominated by women. Today, not, not necessarily leading most churches in the Church of Rome. Women are still subservient, second-class citizens. They can't serve mass. But the congregations are filled with women. And you think of women in most churches in the UK today. The Jehovah's Witnesses are loaded with women. Mormons, Church of England. And here these women are burning incense to false gods. Their husbands are aware of it. And all the women that stood by a great multitude, even all the people that dwelt in the land of Egypt, that dwelt in the land of Egypt in Pathros, answered Jeremiah, saying, As for the word that thou hast spoken unto us in the name of the Lord, 
with the authority of the Lord, we will not hearken unto thee. But we will certainly do whatsoever thing goeth forth out of our own mouth. To burn incense, to burn incense, to burn incense unto the Queen of Heaven. They're still doing it today. In the Catholic Church, they have two months out of the year which are dedicated to Mary. Did you know that? The month of May and the month of October. Not one month is dedicated to Jesus. Interesting, isn't it? Not one month is dedicated to God the Father. Not one month is dedicated to the Holy Ghost. They give you two months, eight weeks out of the entire year. In fact, May has a five-week, May is a five-week month. So what's that, nine weeks? Nine weeks out of the year? They give to the worship of Mary. In fact, let me correct myself. I think October is also a five-week month. But either way, you've got two complete months. Two months given to the worship of Mary. May and October. I remember when Patrick was a Catholic going to Mass one day. And there were Hindus in our local church. Hindus at the, the uh, Lady Altar. Yep. Hindus. Crowds. Crowds of them bringing in their flowers and their foods. Yeah. Their dedications their offerings yeah. and you got hindus in a catholic church in south london 20 years ago not 200 years ago 20 years ago on their knees praying to the queen of heaven and verse 17 and to pour out drink offerings unto her as we have done we and our fathers our kings and our princes in the cities of judah and in the streets of jerusalem for then had we plenty of victuals, and were well, and saw no evil. This is so sad, but it's so common. And here they are saying to Jeremiah, we've been so blessed over the years for worshipping Mary. She's always come through for us. Later on, Jeremiah will say to them, but it's Jehovah who's answered your prayers, because you are his covenant people. It's not Mary. Back in the Old Testament, and here referred to as the Queen of Heaven, I think it's Ashtoreth for memory, and for the day it's Mary, the so-called Queen of Heaven. She can't hear your prayers. John chapter 2, she would say, whatever he says to you concerning Jesus Christ, whatever he says to you, do it. I did a profile of Mary maybe five or six years ago. And for memory, she is found 43 times in the New Testament. 43 times. And for memory, she speaks, I think, three times. <clears throat> Acts chapter 1. And for memory, she's, she's found in 13th place. 13th place. Isn't that interesting? If she's so important, why not mention her first? If I said this to you, if I said, uh, well, next week, there's going to be a big banquet in London, and I'm going to be there, and Patrick's going to be there, and uh, such and such is going to be there, and also such and such is going to be there. Oh, and by the way, the Queen of England is going to be there. Oh, and don't forget the American president is going to be there as well. You would say, well, you've got a very high view of yourself, haven't you? You've mentioned yourself before the Queen of England and the American president. Of course, you wouldn't do that, would you? My point is this. If Mary was the Queen of Heaven, she'd be found first every single time that she's, that she's uh, cited in Scripture, but she's not. Acts chapter 1, like I say, from memory, and I'm running out of time now, but Acts chapter 1, from memory, she's found in 13th place. Uh, yeah, Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 1, verse 14, 13th place, as I thought. And yet for the Old Testament, for the Jews, sacrificing to their Queen of Heaven, they were condemned for it. And next week we'll continue with one more cross-reference from Jeremiah, dealing with the sin of idolatry. But go back very quickly to Exodus, and we will close. Exodus 23, 
And in all things, verse 13, that I have said unto you, be circumspect, take heed, be aware, and make no mention of the name of other gods, neither let it be heard out of thy mouth. Don't mention them, don't mock them, don't even call on their name, because like I say, there are unclean spirits that are affiliated to such demons, devils, false gods. And the Jews are doing it over in Jeremiah, and the Catholics are doing it today when they call upon the name of Mary, their so-called Queen of Heaven. Please open your Bibles to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 23, and let's continue looking at the second book of the Old Testament. Exodus 23, Exodus 23, look at verse 14 if you will. Three times thou shalt keep a feast unto me in the year. As far as the church is concerned, we don't have feast days per se, unless of course you want to celebrate Christmas or Easter, or if you are an American, maybe Thanksgiving, which officially began, I think for memory, in 1837. But as far as the Gentiles are concerned, like the body of Christ, we have no feast days per se. And yet, if you look at a lot of groups, uh, it could be the SDA, it could be the Pentecostals, groups like that, even certain Baptist denominations. They like to keep the feast days. And of course, when you do that, technically you are backloading. Technically, you are backloading the gospel, going back under the law. Three times, thou, singular, shalt keep a feast unto me, being Jehovah, in the year. So first of all, it was good to come together, if you were a Jew, to first and foremost thank Jehovah for blessing you, for taking care of you throughout the previous year. It was also good to meet up with like-minded Jews, because the Jews weren't just a religious people, or didn't just hold to a religious persuasion, they were also a race, a race as well. On top of that, it was imperative to allow their Animals to rest, going back to previous verses, uh, like verse 11. Three times thou shalt keep a feast unto me in the year. Three times of the year, beginning, middle and end, the Jews came together to worship Jehovah, like I say. If you are a Christian, Romans 14 says that if a day is marked out as a holy day, that's okay. And if it's not, that's also okay. Yonder grace, you have great liberty in the Lord, just don't abuse it, like backloading the gospel, like forcing Gentile believers, whether SDA or Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons or Pentecostals or others, to keep the law, which according to Acts chapter 15, even the Jews were unable to keep. Look at verse 15. Thou shalt keep the feast of unleavened bread. And incidentally, these feast days are built into Israel's ceremonial covenants, civil covenants with Jehovah. It's not just the Ten Commandments concerning do's and don'ts. And of course, most of the Ten Commandments are what you should not do. But these verses are what you should do, if you were a Jew, of course. Thou, singular again, shalt keep the feast of unleavened bread. And we looked at that in great depth some weeks ago. Thou shalt eat unleavened bread seven days, as I commanded thee, in the time appointed of the month of Abid. Abib is March, April time. Also, Nisan is around April time. So the Jews would start to meet March, April time to enjoy leavened bread, breaking bread, if you will. That ties in, of course, with Christ going to the cross around April time. In the time appointed of the month of Abib. Also, their calendar uh, for memory would begin around March, April time, whereas we begin our calendar 
January, always go with the Jewish reckoning. The Jews count their days evening to the morning. We count our days morning to the evening. The Jews uh, count their day from 6 a.m. We count our day from midnight. There's a difference. That's what the four Gospels are all about. Concerning, was it the sixth hour? Was it the ninth hour? Was it the third hour when Christ died on a cross? Many atheists have had great fun over the years trying to flag up these so-called discrepancies to show contradictions, quote-unquote, from the Bible. There's no contradictions. One writer is giving you the Gentile dates. Another writer is giving you the Jewish dates. That's all there is to it. But most people don't know the background to the Bible. A lot of Jewish idioms in the Bible as well, which unfortunately a lot of people don't always understand. For in it thou camest out from Egypt, type of the world, and none, and none, and absolutely none, shall appear before me empty. Bring a sacrifice to the Lord, like Abel would do. Paul told you to bring your body to the Lord, to present your body as a living sacrifice unto the Lord, which is your reasonable service. Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Ghost. That's something which the Church of Rome could never get clear. They go crazy if you see a person messing around with a wafer. I remember when I was at school, one day we had an assembly called. It was mid-morning, and our head teacher, an old style Catholic, had been uh, a devout Catholic all of his life, called all of us into the assembly, and he said, he said uh, children, I've got some very sad news for you. And we all sat there, maybe 10, 11, 12, thereabouts. He said, it's been brought to my attention that one boy, and of course you wouldn't name him, has been seen playing with a wafer. And he said, it broke my heart because the wafer is Jesus. And he said, we've had to call the priest to uh, de, uh, deconsecrate. deconsecrate the so-called desecrated wafer. I mean, I'm 10, I'm 11, I'm 12, or thereabouts. And this old Catholic, raised a Catholic, I think his son was a priest from memory, still is. still is, was almost in tears that a young boy had been seen playing with a wafer because in the mind of this well-educated teacher, he thought that the wafer was the body of Christ and that the wine was the blood of Christ. Of course, we know better than that. We are Bible believers. We're not Catholics. But the point is this. He called a huge, well, he called an important assembly. We were all summoned to hear this teacher, 50 years a teacher, almost in tears that a stupid little boy had been playing with a wafer. That's all it is, just a wafer. And this teacher almost had a breakdown. So we don't want to get carried away. We know that we are under grace, not the law. And here, back in the Old Testament, it was imperative to bring something sacred to the Lord. That's, of course, what Abel would do back in Genesis chapter 4. Whereas Cain would bring fruits to the Lord. But your body, it's your body. If you are saved, your body is holy. Because God Almighty lives inside of your body. You're not holy when you take the Eucharist. That's a terrible blunder that Catholics make. They think that if you take the Eucharist, you are holy temporarily because you are consuming Christ. That's blasphemy. That's blasphemy. That's a stupid blunder. Going back to some of the pagan philosophers like Aristotle and uh, others from the Greek-Roman world, even pre-Christ. And some of the church leaders, 2nd, 3rd, 4th century, were caught up in that Greek philosophy concerning some of their ideology. Let's keep reading, verse 16. And the feast of harvest, the first fruits of thy labours, which thou hast sown in the field, and the feast of ingathering, which is in the end of the year, when thou hast gathered in thy labours out of the field. God would bless the land, on the one hand, and yet, on the other hand, he would condemn the land. Going back to the fall, 
of Adam and Eve. And of course, the Feast of Harvest is also referred to as a day of Pentecost. Acts chapter 2, the Jews have a meeting, if you will. They're in the upper room. The Holy Ghost comes on them and they all speak in tongues. Men, not women, no languages, not gibberish. Nobody in Acts chapter 2, apart from the apostles, spoke in tongues. And yet most groups that you see online or beat on the streets, if they are charismatic, think that Acts 2.38 is the plan of salvation for today. It's not. Acts 2.38, just for the record, is for Israel. Because the Jews as a people crucified Christ, their Messiah. A feast of Harvest, verse 16, also referred to as the Feast of Pentecost, the day of Pentecost. The first fruits of thy labours, which thou hast sown in the field. Work with your hands. If you don't work, you don't eat. Also, the Feast of Ingathering is referred to as the Feast of Tabernacles. This is for the Jews, not the Gentiles. Gentiles have no business keeping the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Pentecost, or other feasts. And when Christians start to celebrate such feast days, technically, technically, they are falling from grace. They're going back under the law. Which is in the end of the year, when thou hast gathered in thy labours out of the field. So unleavened bread, beginning of the year, feast of harvest, middle parts of the year, and also feast of ingathering at the end of the year. There's three parts to a Jewish ceremonial and civil calendar. But as far as the Gentiles are concerned, we have no business keeping these feast days or the Sabbath, known as the Shabbats or other Jewish uh, festivities like Hanukkah tied in with uh, Christmas in fact Hanukkah comes at the back end of Thanksgiving in America late November early December Christmas of course is December the 25th going back to Baal worship nothing wrong uh, using Christmas to witness to unsaved people nothing wrong with using Easter to witness to unsaved people but strictly speaking if you are a Bible believer you've got no business really celebrating Christmas or Easter. We go back to Cromwell's time at the realm. He was 10 years as the Lord Protector. It's true that Parliament, not Cromwell, Parliament uh, cancelled Christmas because Parliament was primarily Puritan and the Puritans saw Christmas as being pagan, which technically it is. Christmas, Christ, Christ Mass, Mass, the sacrifice, the ongoing sacrifice. That's a blasphemy. Going back to my old headmaster, almost having a fit that some little boy ignorant boy was playing with the wafer the so-called holy sacraments no such thing in the scripture and he called this meeting this assembly and all the teachers are standing around heads bowed looking very concerned and this teacher in question i mean this guy had a good education he wasn't just some self-taught guy living on the hills i mean he had a good education but he was a failure when it came to the bible never read the bible probably a day in his life like most catholics had been indoctrinated to believe that the Eucharist, a piece of bread, becomes a body. And wine, never once would Christ drink wine per se. He would always drink the fruit of the vine. V-I-N-E, not wine, W-I-N-E. And this educated teacher, being to a good old school, good university, didn't know his Bible. Made a fool of himself, really, but of course that's what Catholics are like. I'm not saying they're all bad people, but they are victims of their system. 17. Three times in the year all thy males shall appear before the Lord God. Males, because they are head of their families. God over Christ. Christ over the church. Woman or women over the children. There's a pecking order. If you are a man, you are 
head of your wife, your wife should be in submission to you. It's pretty rare, isn't it? You speak to sisters in the Lord and you say, are you in submission to your husbands? They laugh at you, most of them. They might say, well, yes, he is, but is he really head over you? Do you submit to him? Do you want everything by him? I mean, everything. Most of you don't. And most men don't want to be heads over their wives. Most men are weak. Most men want an easy life. But here for the Old Testament, a theocracy, not a democracy, a theocracy where Jehovah rules from heaven by the patriarchs, priests and kings, he is demanding at least three times of the year or three times in the year all the males representing their families and also representing the tribes should appear before the Lord God, Jehovah God. 18. Thou shalt not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leaven bread. Neither shall the fat of my sacrifice remain until the morning. Little leaven leavens the whole lump. You can't serve two masters, and yet many of us do, but you shouldn't do. You're either sold out for the Lord or you're not. What do they say? If you are on fire for the Lord, you are called a fanatic. And if you are not on fire for the Lord, you're called a hypocrite. You can't win, can you? Thou shalt not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leavened bread. Blood. Life is in the blood. Literal blood. Christ died a bloody death. The term bloody means just that, blood and guts everywhere. Back in the Old Testament, the priest was sacrificing almost all day, every day. It was like a slaughterhouse. I remember some years ago, we were in Israel. We went to uh, one of the towns there, uh, Nazareth, that's it, Nazareth. And we walked past a Muslim slaughterhouse. Mm. And I've seen butcher shops over the years, obviously I have. But this is the first time I saw an Islamic slaughterhouse massive, massive slaughterhouse, animals strung up, blood on the floor, some were still alive, waiting to be slaughtered, uh, insides of the animals just lying on the ground, Muslims waiting to sacrifice animals, literal blood. This is a bloody book. Jesus Christ died a bloody death. When he died, he had no blood left in him. The thought of him coming out of the, of the tomb, the so-called swoon theory, is a joke. He couldn't stand, he was dead. He had no blood left in him. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And yet Catholics think they can sacrifice Christ every Sunday around this time, and that they are able to bring him down from heaven, crucify him afresh. That's a dangerous fable. That's blasphemy. And yet many Catholics, when you speak about the Mass like that, they go crazy. That's why they killed 50 million people. 50 million people since, what, the 3rd century? In this country, quite rightly, we have... uh, Holocaust memorials to remember what took place during World War II and people should be taught about what the Jews went through during World War II Hitler was an antichrist I'll get back to this in a minute but we hear nothing about the gulags I'll tell you what, five times the amount of people died yeah. in the gulags yeah. five times than who died in the Holocaust there were ten times more death camps in Russia than there were in the whole of occupied Europe but you hear nothing about it. You hear nothing about the Catholic Holocaust, do you? And this is the problem, isn't it? People are ignorant when it comes to history. So 18, for today, I'm going to suggest this, that you should abstain from all appearances of evil. Watch what you say. Going back to last week, don't even mention gods in a flippant sort of a way, because many times unclean spirits are affiliated, are attached to such deities. 19. The first of the first fruits of thy land thou shalt bring into the house of the Lord thy God. Thou shalt not see the kid 
in his mother's milk. This is a very strange verse, verse 19. Uh, basically, seethe is Old English to boil, uh, to make very hot. You think of a saucepan or a frying pan on a stove. It heats up very quickly. But as always, there's two parts to this particular verse. Verse 19 again, first part. The first of thy first fruits of thy land thou shalt bring into the house of the Lord thy God. He means animals, not fruit. Abel would bring a lamb to the Lord. Abel is, of course, a type of Christ. Christ is the Lamb of God. Cain, on the other hand, would bring fruit to the Lord. Cheap fruit or something like that. And God challenged Cain to come clean. Time after time, God challenges people in Scripture to come clean. It is fair to say that had Ananias and Sapphira, Acts chapter 5, come clean about their conspiracy, their fraudulent uh, dealings concerning the, the uh, sale of their property, had they come clean, God, working through Peter, would not have killed that couple. But they were challenged, refused to come clean, and as a result, as a result, were cut down. So God, speaking to the Jews, wants the livestock. Because livestock is valuable, is important. Going back to if you have a car, if you have a motorbike, if you have transportation, you can get around, can't you? Put it this way. The simplest way to understand the Bible in a nutshell, and I will get back to this in a minute, basically comes down to this. Do unto others as you would have others do unto you. Matthew chapter 7. Of course, the first commandment, love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, soul, and strength. Always start with the first commandment. Many times we overlook that. And we focus on the second commandment, love thy neighbor as thyself. But the main way to understand the scripture is just what I said. Do unto others. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Matthew chapter 7. But don't forget, of course, the first commandment. So the first part of verse 19 is pretty straightforward. The first fruits into the house of the Lord God. It will become here is a tabernacle. Later on it becomes a temple. Our bodies, one more time, are the temple of the Holy Ghost. That's why people over in 1 Corinthians were sick. Some were dead. Some were struggling. Why? Because their bodies are first of all holy, but they were defiling their bodies. Defiling their bodies. I was told yesterday of a person online who is a holiness uh, believer. Nothing wrong with holiness. And yes, you were told to be holy. Without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. And I was told that this person yesterday was posting material online, almost bragging about how holy they are and condemning others for not being as holy as they are. But what they didn't tell their crowd online is that they, this woman is married to an unsaved man. And every time you sleep with an unsaved person, according to the Bible, you're sleeping with a corpse. Don't kid yourself. You may not smoke. You may not... Drink alcohol, you may not gamble, but there's plenty, there's, there's plenty more to what you should be doing, not just what you are not doing. Elsewhere, Paul would say, take heed, lest you fall. I watch these people online, I have to bite my tongue sometimes. I have to be careful what I say. I can get quite angry when I come across some of these Pharisees. But let's not go off track. Second part of verse 19. Thou, singular, shalt not seethe, boil a kid... An animal in his mother's milk. So if you go back to the ancient world, basically the Canaanites, and this of course would be their land until God kicked them out because God is the land owner. 
of the entire world, the Canaanites had a ritual, and their ritual, they had many rituals, but this particular ritual would involve boiling the actual kid in a substance which would sustain its life. But basically this is a Canaanite ritual, and Jehovah wants the Jews, once they arrive in the promised land, to stamp out such rituals and not to emulate them. Of course, it's always easy to go with the majority, isn't it? It's always easy to continue doing what your forefathers did. Like Vatican Square, built on pagan land. The popes replaced the Roman Caesars. The cardinals replaced the Senate. And of course, the Catholic people, parishioners, replaced the Roman people. Going back to the first couple of centuries before Christ and after Christ. Look at verse 20. Behold, I send an angel before thee to keep thee in the way, and to bring thee into the place which I have prepared. An angel. Later on, it's the angel of the Lord, a Christophany. And I watched a video a few nights ago uh, concerning a very popular Jewish Christian called Amir Safati. I don't know much about this man, apart from he's a very popular and a very wealthy Jewish Christian travels around the world speaking to mega churches. He's what you call a celebrity Christian. Doesn't use the King James Bible, and that's always a problem. It's always a red flag for me when people don't use the King James Bible, and I'll speak about that a little later, if time allows. And I watched a video a few nights ago of Amir, probably saved, incidentally. I'm not saying he's not saved. He could be saved. I don't know the man. Never met him myself. But on camera, he said that Jesus is Michael the Archangel. That, of course, is ridiculous. Michael in Hebrew, means who is like God. Jesus means Jehovah saves. And a quick read of the scripture, reading the book of Jude, or Zechariah chapter 3, or Matthew chapter 4, you see within five minutes how Jesus Christ would rebuke the devil. The devil was no match for Jesus. Every time the devil came up against Jesus, he would quote scripture, and the devil was gone. But when Michael came up against the devil, over in the book of Jude, concerning the corpse of Moses, the body of Moses... Michael had to say to Lucifer, the Lord, rebuke you. Now how could someone like Amir Safati not get that? An intelligent man, served in the IDF, a very successful tour guide, very popular, very flamboyant, almost idolised, can I say, by Christians all over the world. How can you not get that? He's been seduced, you see. He's hanging around with the, with, uh, with the wrong company. Jesus Christ is the angel of the Lord, that's true. The messenger of Jehovah. And elsewhere, and later on, the angel of the Lord is defined as deity. But here, this is what we referred to as progressive revelation. It wasn't necessary for the Jews to know that the angel of the Lord was first and foremost Jesus Christ, a Christophany, a Theophany. Not always the same, incidentally. But later on, the angel of the Lord in the New Testament switches to the Holy Ghost. But of course, if you're not a Trinitarian, and I'm not saying that Safati isn't, but if you are not a Trinitarian, you get into a real mess, don't you? When you try to work out the angel of the Lord, who he is and what he is. Behold, I send an angel before thee, Jehovah is speaking, to keep thee in the way. In a physical sense, they're going to be in the wilderness for 40 years. Cloud by day, fire by night. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth and the life. And to bring thee into the place which I have prepared. So this angel, later on, is defined as the Lord Jesus Christ. And sometimes people get him mixed up with Melchizedek back in the book of Genesis, which I won't get into this morning, a very deep <laughs> study looking at Melchizedek, who he was and where he came from. Some think, just for the record, that Melchizedek could have been the Holy Ghost. Possibly. But I won't speak about that this morning. Look at verse 21. Beware of him. 
and obey his voice. Provoke him not, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. My name is in him. When it says my name is in him, or when it says I come in the name of the king, or at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, or be baptized in the name of Jesus, it means with the authority, this power in the name of Jesus. So this angel, as far as Moses was aware at this time in history, was just that, an angel. And some may have suggested it could be Michael, a created being. Jesus Christ is eternal, of course. Or Gabriel, a created being, created in time, obviously. Whereas Jesus Christ, the word of God, is eternal. And it does worry me sometimes that people like Amir and his friends are very good when it comes to Bible uh, prophecy and current affairs and are pre-tribulational, praise the Lord for that, and love the Lord, and I'm sure they do. But they are, at many times, novices when it comes to the Scripture. They don't go deep into the Scripture. They don't study the Scripture verse by verse. Listen, if you are a Bible teacher, you've got to think these things through. I've been a Christian 17 years. It took me nine years, nine years to record every book in the New Testament. It's taken me, what, 17 months to go through Exodus? Mm-hmm. I'm up to chapter 23. I've got maybe 12 more months to go. I don't rush through these books. And I know that when I preach, people listen to what I say. And he's been challenged, incidentally, to repent. And he won't repent. He put a video up, apparently, a couple of days ago. He's standing firm. Yes, he says Jesus Christ is God Almighty, and praise the Lord for that. Being Emmanuel, like God with us. But he won't retract that video. And some of his friends are very questionable. Just be careful, people, who you follow. Be careful who you support. Just be careful. Check people out carefully. And the moment they get something wrong, including myself, pull them up. Beware of him. Obey his voice. Obey. Obey his voice. Provoke him not. Why is that? For he will not pardon your transgressions. One angel back in the Old Testament would kill 175,000 people. God's voice would come out of the mouth of this angel. This angel enjoys God's authority. For my name is in him. So this angel, one more time, or one final time, is a Christophany. Jesus Christ, second member of the Trinity. But here he's been not fully revealed. The mystery of godliness, or contrast that to the mystery of iniquity. You really studied the Lord Jesus Christ and the devil. In fact, last night I was thinking about this. You studied Jesus Christ and the devil. They're so similar. Jesus Christ is called an angel. The devil is called an angel. Jesus Christ is a lion. The devil is called a lion. Jesus Christ has a church. The devil has a church. You really study Jesus Christ sometime and the devil. If you weren't saved, if you weren't saved, you couldn't tell them apart. I believe that. Satan is such a perfect counterfeit to Jesus Christ. In fact, I'll say one more thing. It wouldn't surprise me. It wouldn't surprise me that when the Antichrist arrives... He looks just like Jesus Christ lived back in the first century. We're not told what Jesus looked like, which is just as well, because many people would make idols of him. They would try to depict him. Six one, long hair, blue eyes, of course not, but they would many times do paint him in such a way. But it wouldn't surprise me if the Antichrist, and of course the devil is going to be inside the Antichrist, if the Antichrist looks just like Jesus Christ. It wouldn't surprise me. It says over in Matthew 24 how... If it were possible, if it were possible, even the elect would be deceived. Thankfully, it's not possible. But if it was, you and I would be deceived. 
And just for the record, Matthew 24 is speaking about tribulation saints, not church age saints. 22, but if thou shalt indeed obey his voice and do all that I speak, then I will be an enemy unto thine enemies and an adversary unto thine adversaries. That's a great verse. If you would follow the Lord back in the Old Testament, he would open up more land for you. But if you didn't obey his voice back in the Old Testament, you would lose your land. That's why the Jews today are hemmed in. The state of Israel today is, is the size of New Jersey on the east coast of America. Their land is about the size of Wales in the UK. They've lost land left, right and centre. When Solomon was on the throne, he was topped up. He had so much land. He had uh, kingdoms. He had the tribes all under his authority. But due to sin, superstition and idolatry, they lost the land. They'll get it back one day, of course. They'll get it back one day. During a thousand year reign, 23 and I'll close. For mine angel shall go before thee and bring thee in unto the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. And I will cut them off. I will cut them off. I will destroy them. God is a God of war. One of his titles is just that, a God of war. A man of war. And when he comes back, second advent, in the person of Jesus Christ, you've got bodies all over the place. I finished reading Ezekiel two nights ago. And it says over in Ezekiel that it will take those that are on the earth seven months to bury the dead. Seven months. Now you thought the Holocaust was a rough deal, and it was. And I spent many years talking about the Holocaust and the gulags in Russia, like I say, they had many more death camps than the Germans. But you, you, you very rarely hear about that. And you thought that the Inquisition was pretty brutal, and it was. But you wait until the tribulation. Seven months to bury the dead. God is a holy God. And many times we don't want to think about that, do we? We like to pick and choose which verses uh, to pick out. But again, going back to previous Sundays... When it speaks about the innocents, it's not just in reference to the unborn. It was also in reference to children not being physically sacrificed to pagan gods. Customs back in the ancient world, which hadn't, re hadn't really gone away. I mean, physical sacrifices are more subtle now. But it was imperative for the Jews that were going into the promised land not to get caught up with wicked rituals. And yet what do we have today in most church circles? Just that. The blind, following the blind... Sometimes good Christian people, I'm sure they're not all intentionally deceived or deceivers, but they're wrong. They're in error. Could be the deity of Christ, could be the Bible issue, which I won't discuss this morning. I'm out of time, but maybe next week I'll discuss that. These are really important issues. The, uh, the Bible says how the scripture was given for doctrine, first and foremost, for doctrine. But the Bible was first and foremost written for doctrine. You get your doctrine wrong, you get everything wrong. You get the nature of God wrong, you get everything wrong. Thou, singular, shalt not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do after their works. But thou shalt utterly overthrow them, and quit, quite, break down their images. I jumped a verse there, but it's okay. This will continue from next week, going back to false gods. Like verse 13, don't even mention them, be circumspect, take heed, be aware. Don't even mention these false gods, because they're, they're evil, they're wicked. But 24... And 23 go together, but I'll go back to 23 one more time and close. For mine angel, there we are, my angel, my angel shall go before thee in a physical sense. Today we live by faith, not sight. Jesus said he would never leave us nor forsake us. 
and bring thee in unto the Amorites, their land, and the Hittites, their land, and the Perizzites, their land, and the Canaanites, their land, the Hittites, and the Jebusites, and I, and I, and I will cut them off. He's going to clean house. He's going to wipe out thousands of pagan Gentiles that were sacrificing their children in a physical sense. Go back to the 1980s. They had a music event in London. It was raising money for, was it Africa or Ethiopia? Uh, yeah. Ethiopia. Ethiopia. Band-Aid. Band-Aid. People like Bob Geldof and uh, Freddie Mercury Stones. and David Bowie. They raised millions of pounds yeah. for Africa. Yeah. But what they didn't tell you was one of the reasons why those Africans were starving was due to sin. Mm. Underage sex, homosexuality, bestiality, sacrificing their children to devils, demons. That crowd didn't tell you that in London. And you've got kids turning up, 1983, 84, queuing up all night to get a ticket mm. to see their megastars, their superstars, their celebrity performers, only to really be shortchanged. That's why people suffer today in most parts, most parts of the world, down to sin. And that's why Africa is on its knees almost. And because of that sin in Africa today and back in the ancient world, God would just wipe out one, two, three, four, five, six groups of people. Just like that. Wipe them out. He wiped out the Third Reich. He crippled Russia. By 1989, Russia was bankrupt. Now the Russian economy is the size of the Italian economy. The Italian economy. And one day he will probably wipe out Britain. We're already in a very pitiful state. British Empire has gone. America is in massive debt. It owes 40 trillion, is it? Something ridiculous. 40 trillion dollars in debt. Every country in Europe is bankrupt. Churches are collapsing, surrendering. Kids are being taught LGBT. Where's it all going to end? In apostasy. Every era ends in apostasy. But of course the rapture. Hope that we all live for is imminence. And it could come at a moment's notice. And that's why if you're saved keep your eyes on that and don't get too depressed or downhearted and we'll hold, we'll hold it there and pick it up next week in verse 24 and go into this verse in a bit more detail exodus chapter 23 and uh, just want to very quickly give you a recap as to what we looked at so the last several weeks uh, from verse 1 and 2 it deals with not uh, being a part of a false report not following the crowd basically like during the days of noah where only eight souls were saved. Also from verse 4, if your enemy's livestock animal was to go astray, you were commanded to bring it back to him. Paul tells you the same thing from Romans 12, verse 20. Also from verse 7, keep thee far from a false matter, and the innocent and righteous slay thou not, for I will not justify the wicked. You think of the occasion back in uh, when somebody came to David and said, uh, I've got good news for you, your majesty. We've just found Saul. He's been cut down. In fact, I just killed Saul. And this guy wants to take the credit for it. David rips his clothes. Has the man killed? Although Saul was a bad man, technically he was righteous. He was the Lord's anointed. And therefore, Almighty God will not justify. He won't congratulate. He will condemn the wicked. Also from verse 9, we looked at what the Jews were meant to do when they went into the promised land, how they were to be fair and caring to us uh, to some extent concerning strangers like Gentiles. And we looked at the John Lewis chain in the UK, a cooperative. I don't know if there are any other uh, cooperatives today with the co-op bank, but I think most of the staff who work for the co-op are just paid uh, members of staff. I don't know if they've got shares 
in the co-op, but uh, John Lewis and his father, of course, were able to work closely together and basically carve up the profits. Of course, old man Lewis was kept in the dark. His son basically lied to him, but uh, down the line, his staff were made shareholders, got a cut from the profits, and uh, I guess it's probably fair to say it's another form of socialism. Also, from uh, verse 14, it says, Three times thou shalt keep a feast unto me in the year. The feast days were compulsory. The Sabbath was compulsory. If you broke the Sabbath, you were put to death, basically. If you violated the feast days, you were severely castigated. And I say that because sometimes we speak to people who aren't dispensational, and they would have us believe that every word in the Bible is all doctrinally to us and for us. And of course it's not. You were told to rightly divide the word of truth. But let's start today, if we may, in verse 24. Exodus 23, verse 24. Thou shalt not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do after their works. But thou shalt utterly overthrow them, and quite break down their images. Just destroy their images. Don't bow down to their gods. Don't serve them. Basically be separate. Today separation is an ugly word isn't it? Segregation is also an ugly word. But if you are a Bible believing Christian. God has divided the peoples of the world. Acts chapter 17. Yes we are all one blood. But we have different chromosomes. We have different backgrounds. We have different cultures. And for the Old Testament, Jews were not to intermingle with Gentiles. Thou, once again, thou being you, in a singular sense, this is aimed at people, not just the nation per se. Thou shalt not bow down to their gods. Don't bow down to the gods of the Amorites, verse 23, the Canaanites, verse 23, the Perizzites, verse 23, the Jebusites, verse 23. And today, if you are a Christian, you have no business bowing down to Mary. You have no business going into your local mosque and bowing down to Allah. Don't bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do after their works. Don't follow their examples, basically. Peter says you are a peculiar people. Peter says we are a royal priesthood. There is a difference between us and the world. But thou shalt utterly overthrow them. Could you do that? Now go back to what I said a few minutes ago. If you're not a dispensationalist, how do you exegete these verses? Here God says, first of all, not only to separate from them, but now he wants them to be destroyed. Utterly overthrow them in reference to their works, their existence. And quite thoroughly break down their images. Keep your hand there and go to Jeremiah 46. Three nights ago, I was able to finish reading through the Old Testament. What a great blessing uh, reading through the Old Testament. I guess I'll probably go back to the beginning, maybe tonight or tomorrow, and uh, start from Genesis chapter 1. There's really no reason why Christians can't read their Bibles through, at least uh, once within six months, or twice within 12 months. Uh, Jeremiah 46, Jeremiah 46, look at verse 25 if you will. The Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, saith, Behold, I will punish the multitude of No, and Pharaoh and Egypt with their gods, and their kings, even Pharaoh, and all them that trust in him. One of the reasons why David would cripple the horses back in, I think it's 1 Kings from memory, 
uh, was first and foremost those kings uh, would cause Israel to sin. They would put their faith in horses, not in the Lord. But the overall reason why David would cripple the horses back in the Old Testament was because those horses had come out of Egypt and Egypt was contaminated. But those horses had also been dedicated to the sun god, S-U-N. And God won't allow his people to mess around or to be affiliated with Egypt being a type of the world. So when it says, behold, I will punish a multitude of No and Pharaoh and Egypt with their gods and their kings, even Pharaoh, and all them that trust in him, it means just that, that God will take his enemies and use his enemies to destroy themselves. Basically turn enemy A against enemy B. And 26, and I will deliver them into the hand of those that seek their lives. And into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of all his servants, and afterward it shall be inhabited as in the days of old, saith the Lord. Go back to Exodus. So what God will do and has done throughout the history of the world is he will take enemy number one, like I say, and use enemy number one to destroy enemy number two. And sometimes he will use enemy one and enemy two to chastise his own people. On one occasion back in the Old Testament, Solomon was backsliding. And the Lord got fed up with him backsliding, wouldn't repent, wouldn't clean up basically. And the Lord would raise up an adversary to buffet Solomon. And that lasted for many years until the end of his life. 24 again, thou shalt not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do after their works. And of course, that's what the Jews would go on to do. And Moses told you that would happen over in Deuteronomy. But thou shalt utterly overthrow them. And quite break down their images, images, statues, idols. It's not just Catholics that have images, idols, statues. A lot of Protestants do. In fact, I was on a walk a few days ago and I walked past a church not far from here. And it's a Church of England uh, building. And to my surprise, they got a statue outside, on the outside, which Henry VIII uh, removed during the Reformation. And to my surprise, there's a statue there. I haven't seen that before. I think it was Mary. High Church, High Anglican. 26, in fact 25, excuse me. And ye shall serve the Lord your God, and he shall bless thy bread and thy water, and I will take sickness away from the midst of thee. So it's quite simple. If you walk with the Lord, he walks with you. If you remain in the Spirit, you don't fulfill the sins of the flesh. But if you stop walking in the Spirit, you start to commit the sins of the flesh. You go back under the law, you transgress the law. That's what First John chapter 3 is all about. And when you transgress the law, you are a transgressor. Ye shall serve the Lord your God, plural. And he shall bless thy bread, you need food to survive, and thy water, you need water to survive, of course. And I will take sickness away from the midst of thee. Up until the book of Exodus, from memory, going back to the book of Genesis, nobody was ever sick. I think the first sickness in uh, the book of Exodus would be when Moses temporarily uh, would contract leprosy and that's when God was testing him put your hand into your shirt put it out your hand is leprous uh, put it back into your shirt it's now gone basically uh, Egypt was a contaminated land you had people that were sacrificing to gods uh, offering their kids up in a literal sense to false gods murdering their children you had bestiality I mean everything imaginable under the sun was taking place in Egypt the Canaanites were wicked for it. And going back to when that man brought news to David about Saul's uh, death. Of course, Saul was already dying due to the Philistines' attack against him. And as Saul was dying, a bit like when Hitler was dying, Saul said to his 
armor bearer, just finish me off before the Philistines get to me. And Hitler said that to his men, finish me off before the Russians get to me. Nothing new under the sun. You'll always find wickedness in both Testaments and throughout the history of the world. And this guy saw Saul dying and thought that if he told David that he had killed off Saul, he'd be rewarded. And of course, he wasn't rewarded. He was executed because, again, Saul was the Lord's anointed. Saul was the Lord's anointed. The powers that be, Romans chapter 13, are ordained of God. But the promise from 25 is if you walk with him, he will walk with you and he will take sickness away from the midst of thee but of course as we go through the old testament into the new people are sick left right and center paul was sick most of his life in fact i got an email last week from a vietnam veteran a very nice email from a dear brother and he said this to me he said brother james he said uh, i've been struggling for 28 years 30 years or thereabouts uh with physical issues Going back to my uh, time in Vietnam, of course, Vietnam finished back in the 1970s, 74, 75. This guy was suffering post-Vietnam, and basically he's been suffering for at least 30 years. I guess that must have begun probably in the early 1980s. But basically, he's a Christian man, he does street work, he does evangelism. And he said this to me, he said, uh, I am addicted to certain uh, medications, painkillers, he, he, he named them to me, and I feel bad about it i feel i shouldn't be taking medication for my illnesses i feel i should be carrying my cross etc 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 i got back to the brother well first of all brother i said uh, nothing wrong with having ailments or sicknesses i said uh, the apostle paul was sick all of his life traveled all over the place with a doctor a medical doctor interesting and yet the doctor couldn't help him out he was still sick all of his life uh trophimus timothy and other greats from the new testament were sick and I said, uh, you don't need to be worrying about taking medication. I said, God never condemns medicine. If he condemned medicine, he wouldn't have chosen Dr. Luke to be one of uh, Paul's friends. And of course, Luke would write two books of the New Testament. So sicknesses are an everyday part of life. This is a fallen world. And until we are removed uh, from this fallen world, we're going to have problems, ailments. Sometimes illness can be sin related, but not always, not always. Paul was a good man, didn't sin as far as I can tell, and yet the Lord allowed him to suffer with ailments. Old Job was a good old man, couldn't sin or didn't sin as far as I can tell, apart from being self-righteous, found over in Job 31, and yet the Lord allowed him to go through some awful events, and others back in the Old Testament. But basically, uh, sickness will be taken away if they walk with the Lord, and they will be blessed with an abundance of food and water. Look at verse 26. There shall nothing cast their young, nor be barren in thy land. The number of thy days I will fulfill. So the promise from verse 26 will deal with miscarriages. For example, there will be no miscarriages or barren women if they too would obey Almighty God during the land. And again, I'm not saying that if a woman is barren or isn't able to conceive that it is down to sin. Not always. A lot of women in this country who aren't saved have got many children. Many children. But basically, from the ancient world, if women were not with child, there was a stigma attached to it. So therefore, the blessings will continue one more time. There shall nothing cast their young, nor be barren in thy land. It's now their land, but like our salvation. What does Paul say? Lay hold on eternal life. You've got it already. The number of thy days I will fulfill. So what you've got basically for the Old Testament is a blessing a blessing from the Lord to the people of Israel if they walk with him, 
if they continue to walk with him. If you are a Christian today and you continue to walk with the Lord Jesus Christ, he will walk with you. He will bless you. He will open doors to your left, right and centre. But if you start walking with him, if you basically overthrow your faith, which Paul speaks about from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and you stop walking with him, you start to backslide, then it's possible that you may experience the sin unto death. But verse 26 basically is promising in a nutshell that for the women that walked uh, with the Lord, first of all, they wouldn't uh, experience any miscarriages or be barren. And on top of that, their livestock would breed and uh, allow the children of Israel to be self-sufficient, autonomous, of course. 27. I will send my fear before thee, and will destroy all the people to whom thou shalt come. And I will make all thine enemies turn their backs unto thee. A bit like Jacob found over in Genesis on one occasion, his sons overreacted, wiped out a local community due to the rape of their sister, which they took very personally, which is understandable, but they went overboard, cut people down, massacred people. And that, of course, was a great problem for Jacob. He, on one occasion, would say to his sons, everyone is against me, like me, 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 thinking about himself. And as he left that village, it says how the fear of God went with them and nobody dared to pursue after them. But my fear from verse 20 is connected to mine angel, verse 23, and also an angel, verse 20. The angel from verse 20 and also 23 is connected to fear. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And this angel is, of course, the angel of the Lord. For the Old Testament, nearly every single time, was in reference to Jesus Christ. For the New Testament, post the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, was in reference to the Holy Ghost. And I get that from Acts chapter 8. I will send my fear before thee, singular, but it's aimed at the people in general, and will destroy all the people to whom thou shalt come. And I'll make all thine enemies turn their backs unto thee. Like, put your foot on their neck, rub their face into the dirt. On one occasion, King Saul failed to honour orders from the Lord. He wasn't a great king. In fact, he was a bit of a failure, if the truth were known. But he was still the Lord's anointed. Still the Lord's anointed, going back to how God won't justify the wicked from verse 7. On one occasion, Saul was told to wipe out an entire people, men, women, children, livestock, and he failed to do that. And old Samuel came along, one of the great prophets from the Old Testament. And uh, basically he took control of the situation. Got one of the guys on his face and put his foot on the neck of one of the pagan kings. To demonstrate the Jews' supremacy over the Gentiles. That will of course take place during the thousand year reign. 28. And I will send hornets before thee. Which will drive out the Hivite, the Canaanites. And the Hittite from before thee. So God Almighty, as the landowner of the world, if you will, will just clean shop. He'll wipe out people left, right and centre. I've got Billy Graham's biography. I read it years ago. And uh, Billy Graham was a very strange man. Probably too educated for his own good. His first job as a pastor was in a Masonic Hall of all places. And he went to Ireland during the Troubles and met the Catholics and the Protestants. Very ecumenical. That's why he was so successful for so long. And in his autobiography, he speaks about the uh, Cold War around 88, 89, 90. And he said this on a trip to, I think it was Western Germany, as it was known at the time. He said, uh, we must never see 
man's inhumanity to mankind again. It was pretty bad what took place during World War II, and of course it was. And it's been pretty bad what's been taking place during the Cold War, and it certainly was. Let's all hope we never see this again. Of course, Billy doesn't know his Bible. Billy wasn't pre-millennial, probably post-millennial, a-millennial. And guys like Billy Graham hit the book of Revelation, spiritualize it, spiritualize it. The two witnesses uh, represent the church, the third temple, uh, probably the church in general, and the Antichrist, the false prophet and the beast were not literal characters, symbolic, you see. And when they do that, they miss out on a blessing, rob the Lord of his glory, because the main theme of this Bible is the second coming. And I will send hornets before thee, which will drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittite from before thee. So you've got hornets, bees or wasps, uh, massive things driving out pagans. You've got three groups of people. And again, the Canaanites were a notorious bunch back in the Old Testament. Animal sacrifices to false gods, human sacrifices to false gods, bestiality, severe uh, perversion in the worst possible sense. And what the Lord did not want was for his people to go into the land and adopt some of the customs. Look at the Reformation. It was a great blessing for the world when people like uh, Luther, Zwingli and Calvin came along for a thousand years, utter darkness, and in over, what, a hundred year period or thereabouts, three Guys arrived, started to dismantle Catholicism, and praise the Lord for that. But they didn't go far enough. They baptized babies. They taught a middle way concerning uh, the breaking of bread. And uh, on top of that, they were still, in many ways, Catholic. Yes, they taught faith alone. But if you read their writings, they seem to contradict themselves at times. Continue to adopt some of the customs. That's not what God wanted. The whole point of the Reformation was a complete break from rome like brexit a complete break from brussels that's what we want that's what god wanted for his people and yet you look at the reformation the reformers or people in the uk today or other people it's fascinating in fact i watched a documentary last week of immigration in southern ireland i'll get back to this in a minute very interesting documentary and this film crew was speaking to journalists in southern ireland and they spoke to a woman who was i think a a politician or had been linked to politicians it could be Sinn Féin or uh, Fianna Gael Fianna Foyle Fianna Gael always get confused with the Irish politics Fianna Foyle Fianna Gael very similar she may have been Sinn Féin but I don't think so and basically she said this she said we fought to kick the Brits out but I thought but you won't fight will you to kick the immigrate the immigrants out will you the Mohammedans and I watched this woman I thought this is typical of post-modernism here's a woman uh, university educated, able to go back over history and say how the Irish kicked out the Brits, how they carved up, or they took back uh, Southern Ireland for themselves. 26 districts, was it? Mm-hmm. Six districts. Six districts. In they the took north, it yeah. in, the, uh, in the north, yeah. and the Irish got their independence from the south. I won't yeah. give you a history lesson, but basically she was quite proud of her uh, Irish ancestral roots, how they kicked the Brits out. But that same woman didn't want to say when they kicked the immigrants out, oh no. And she didn't say we're going to free ourselves from the bondage of Brussels. Oh, no. I thought, isn't that interesting? We won't have the Brits to rule over us, but we have the Brusselites to rule over us. The whole thing is just an absolute fuss. Absolute fuss. But for the Jews, let's stay on context. For the Jews, it was imperative that once they went into the land, they stayed in the land. They had no relations, connections with the Gentiles. It was a grave sin for Jews to marry Gentiles. 
And also, this wasn't a colour issue. This was a creed issue. The Jews weren't allowed to marry the Gentiles because the Gentiles were, first of all, unclean physically and ceremonially. And secondly, the Jews were a peculiar people. And therefore, for today, if you are a Christian, and I've said this many times over the years, you have no business marrying a non-Christian. 29. I will not blot them out from before thee in one year, lest the land become desolate, and the beasts of the field multiply against thee. So the Lord isn't in a rush to do this. Also, he wants to weed out some of the unbelievers. It speaks about a mixed multitude coming up out from Egypt. And Jesus Christ speaks about the wheat and the tares over in uh, Matthew 13. So the Lord will do this slowly, carefully, methodically. Because, of course, if they're going to the land too quickly, what will await them? I will not drive them out from before thee in one year. In reference to the Hivites, Canaanites, the Hittites, from 28. Lest the land become desolate, just barren, and the beasts of the field multiply against thee. They're outnumbered like three to one. You go back to Southern Ireland just very briefly. Yes, they partly uh, regained independence 1916 or thereabouts. I'm not quite sure off the top of my head. And they've been independent for a long time. But be aware of this, that up until probably the 1980s, 1990s, Ireland was a third world country. Stooped in superstition. Priests and nuns were like gods. Literally, people in terror of these priests and nuns and yet to watch that smug journalist saying we kicked the Brits out we've got independence now and yet this part of southern Ireland uh, is now being overrun by Mohammedans and she said we've tried to deal with this via the council we've got nowhere and I thought yeah so much for democracy and we are now very unhappy that more immigrants are coming via Brussels of course they are being paid uh, to be uh, Europe is paying countries to take immigrants uh, to different parts of the world, which is another story for another day. But I thought, go on, say what you want to say. Say that you're going to rise up and deal with Brussels. Oh no, we love Brussels. And say you're going to deal with the Mohammedans. Oh no, we'll deal with the Mohammedans. And yet the IRA were merciless, merciless. Not only would they kill British soldiers, not only would they kill the RUC, which is now called the police service in Northern Ireland, they would kill their own people. You had the IRA, a Catholic terrorist organization, killing their own people. Not all Catholics were pro the IRA, incidentally, like the ANC. The ANC wouldn't just kill white people in South Africa. They killed black people in South Africa. They put tires around people's necks and set them alight. But of course, you won't hear that, will you? I will not drive them out from before thee in one year, lest the land become desolate. It's all about the land. It's the land. The Jews have a right to the land. God Almighty created everything in six literal days. This book is about a king and a kingdom, but it's also about the land that God gave to the Jews. Lest the land become desolate and the beasts of the field multiply against thee. By little and little I would drive them out from before thee until thou be increased and inherit. I love that word. Inherit the land. You can inherit your, not salvation, that's a free gift, but you can inherit or lose your inheritance when it comes to crowns and rewards when you die, and I've had to slightly rethink my understanding of the millennial reign uh, concerning a lost inheritance, and I'll discuss that some other time. But basically, for the Jews, although the land was given to them unconditionally, going back to Abraham, was asleep, and the Lord made a covenant with Abraham when he was asleep, 
it was imperative, Joshua chapter 1, Joshua chapter 2, to go into the land, to claim the land. It was imperative then and for today, if you are a Christian, it is imperative to pick up your cross each and every day and walk with the Lord. That brother in America, he's probably up in years now, was beating himself up for no reason. And he said to me this, he said, I've been struggling with this for 20 years, 25 years. And I feel I should be suffering for the Lord. And I feel it's a terrible sin to take medication. And I kind of felt really sorry for this brother. And I said to him again, well, if it's such a big deal or if it's such a terrible sin, then why would Paul be traveling around with a doctor? Sometimes sicknesses bring you closer to him and allow you to relate to other people. And I made that case when I went through uh, 2 Corinthians some time ago. By a little and little, verse 30, I will dry them out from before thee. This is God's doing until thou be increased and inherit the land. Let's say you are a non-Jew. Let's say you don't love the Jews. Let's say you are anti-Israel. The main reason why people hate the Jews and are anti-Israel is because they hate the Bible. They hate God, basically. And I've watched these people over the years, and it gets my goat when I watch these people and listen to these people basically attacking the Jews, attacking the land. And they do so for many reasons, many reasons. But first of all, they do it because they hate God. They don't know God, obviously. They hate the Jews because the Jews are God's people, historically and even prophetically and in the future. But they also attack Israel's right to the land, found over here in verse 30, because they don't believe in the Bible. And yet those same despicable reprobates will join forces with Muslims, Mohammedans, and yet in their book, the so-called Holy Quran, doesn't mention once how the land of Israel belonged to Muhammad and co. Never once. But it mentions in the Bible... I think from memory, 2,000 times or thereabouts, how the land was given to the Jews as an inheritance. An inheritance. It comes down to authority, you see. What's your final authority? If you're not a Christian, what is your final authority? And of course, you ask that question, you see very quickly that these people have no authority. 31. And I will set thy bounds from the Red Sea, even unto the Sea of the Philistines, and from the desert unto the river probably Euphrates. Mm. For I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and thou shalt drive them out before thee. I'll give it to you, first and foremost, but you've got to go in, take it for yourself, and kick them out. It's a bit like salvation. Christ lives in me, the Father lives in me, the Holy Ghost lives in me, my name is written in heaven, but I've got to pick up that cross each and every day. I've got to walk with the Lord, I've got to stay in the spirits, and it's technically possible to not sin, when you stay in the spirits, but many of us backslide, we start to go back, we start to reevaluate our old man, Romans chapter 6, which was buried with Christ, was baptized with Christ, was resurrected with Christ, and we start to pine over the good old days when Charles II replaced Richard Cromwell. Richard Cromwell was a failure, he lasted maybe less than a year when his father Oliver died, and the country were desperate to go back to royalty. And they found old Childs, a very flamboyant, uh, bisexual, papist. And they brought him back to the UK, gave him a good deal. A bit like Ireland, concerning the European Union and other countries uh, in the European Union. And old Charles II came back, and the royalists were clapping their hands, saying, it's like the good old days. And there's always a honeymoon period, isn't there? Always a honeymoon period when a new leader comes on the scene. It could be a president or a prime minister. But as the years went by, people got fed up with Charles II. He was a failure too. A bit like uh, his father, Charles I. Unfortunately, these sons were related to King James. Not his fault, of course. 
It's not James's fault that his sons were no good, a bit like Samuel. He had a couple of sons that were no good. And it could be that Samuel, in a sense, was more of a father to Israel than he was to his own sons. That's one of the problems if you are a father and you are preaching like Samuel and his sons were no good. And uh, James's sons were no good. And the country got fed up with uh, Charles II, like I say, failing the country, basically living off the booty, enjoying himself. And as a result, uh, they started to pine for the days of Oliver Cromwell. But historians don't tell you that. Most historians are anti-Cromwell, anti-the Bible, anti-God, anti-Christ. They will always line up with the Mohammedans, going back to what's going on in Ireland at the moment, or atheists or Catholics. Most historians that I can think of have an agenda, and that's why it's always imperative to do your own research. And I will set thy bounds from the Red Sea, even under the Sea of the Philistines. <clears throat> Almighty God is going to carve up the world, if you will. Go back to 1948, 1947, Mountbatten was sent from London to deal with India, to give India back to the Indians. And old Mountbatten went over to uh, India at the time, just one country, massive country. Mm. And he got his ruler out, his ruler, yeah. or ruler, and he carved it up. And he said, this part is for India, this part is for Pakistan. Oh, and by the way, at the top, we will leave Kashmir, which it's now called. We'll leave it uh, as it stands, and we will return one day to deal with it. Seventy years later, it hasn't been dealt with. Kashmir is still fought over by India and Pakistan. But that gives you an idea of the power, doesn't it? In fact, keep your hand there and go to Acts chapter 17. I mentioned how the Lord... Believes in uh, segregation and uh, separation. Ugly words, of course. Most politicians are globalists. Most politicians are into the one world order. Acts 17, Acts 17, look at verse 24. God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things, and hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth, and hath determined the times appointed before, and the bounds of their habitation. This is God's world, and yet, in a way that I don't quite understand, he delegates this world system to the devil. He's called the God of this world. Second Corinthians 4, four, twenty-seven, that they should seek the Lord, if haply they might feel after him, and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. And certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Go back to Exodus 23, please. Exodus 23. So Paul reiterates what I've been reading to you this morning. And from the book of Exodus, God is going to set the bounds, 31, concerning the promised land, concerning the land for the Jews. They will go into the land, but bit by bit, they start to apostatize bit by bit. They start to surrender bit by bit. They start to compromise and uh, they will go on to lose a lot of their land. Israel today is a tiny blot in the Middle East, the size of Wales. And yet had the Jews gone back in 1948 in real faith, believing in Jehovah, most of the Jews that went back in 1948 were communists, socialists, atheists. But had they gone back in real faith, it's my belief that the Lord would have opened up more of the land to the Jews with the anticipation of Christ's return. 31, and I'll close. And I will set thy bounds from the Red Sea, even unto the Sea of the Philistines, and from the desert unto the river, 
God Almighty has got his marker pen out, if you will. He's going to rewrite the maps. He's going to remark what goes where. Uh, maps, like I say, come back to when Mount Batten went to India in 1947. He was there for over a year, actually, mm. uh, dealing with the independence for India, working with Gandhi and uh, some of his uh, Hindu friends and Muslim friends. Uh, Gandhi was a Hindu, of course. Some of his friends were Muslim. They basically bodged Kashmir, and to this day, it's still a major uh, stumbling block for Indians and uh, Pakistanis. But go back to the Old Testament. God is redefining the boundaries concerning the promised land. Paul picks us up, and I just read it to you from Acts chapter 16. Yes, we are all one blood, but we have different chromosomes. We have different cultures. We enjoy different things. We're not all the same. Some people like Mexican food. Some people like Italian food. Some people like Indian food. Some people are vegans. Some, pe some people are vegetarians. Some people are meat eaters. We're not all the same. We don't look the same. We don't sound the same. We don't even smell the same. And from the desert unto the river, for I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand. Basically what he's saying is, I will hand these people over to you to kill them. Going back to when Moses caught one of his brethren being assaulted, and he stepped in, killed that man. Basically, God handed, handed such a person over to Moses to annihilate. Going back to Romans 13, how the powers that be are all ordained of God. Hitler couldn't have marched five miles. Stalin couldn't have marched five miles. Mount Batten couldn't have travelled five miles. D-Day couldn't have happened if it hadn't been for the Lord's permissive will. The Lord's permissive will. I will deliver the inhabitants, the people of the land, into your hand concerning Israel, and thou shalt dry them out before thee. Go in, take it, clear them all out, cut them down. This is a very bloody book, and I'll say this one more time. If you think that prophets are still for today, and people do, let me remind you that prophets in the Old Testament wouldn't just speak words from the Lord, which we'll look at next week, the words of the Lord. They would go in with their swords, cut people down. Samuel, like I say, killed a group of Gentiles because Saul refused to do so. David would not only kill a group of people, he would castrate a group of people. This is a very bloody book. All these people, incidentally, David, Solomon, Abraham, and here, Exodus 23, all types of Christ. All types of Christ. And when Christ returns, Revelation 19, has got a sword. Revelation 19, it says he cuts down the remnants. And that remnants are... People that belong to the Antichrist. But we will continue this next week. And it looks like we've got probably at least one more Sunday. Which will take us up to part 5. From Exodus chapter 23. Please go to the book of Exodus. And uh, last week we arrived at uh, verse 31. So for this morning let's begin and hopefully conclude. From verses 32 and 33. Exodus 24. Exodus 24. Look at 32. Thou shalt make no covenant with them, nor with their gods. So time after time, Jehovah is reiterating with the Jews what he wants and what he doesn't want, what he will allow and what he will not allow. You would have thought that Jehovah would have been more than enough for the Jews, and you would think that Christ would be more than enough for the Catholics. People want more. People want more than just Jesus for the here and now, or Jehovah going back to the Old Testament. They want to see. They want to enjoy the goodies. They want to be a part of a system. Over in Judges, it says how every man uh, did that which was right in his own eyes. One more time. Thou shalt make no covenant with them, nor with their gods. Keep your hand there and go to Ezekiel uh, chapter 
33 when I first got saved 17 years ago. I've been raised a Catholic, went through the whole system. And when I read the New Testament for the first time, it changed my life. It really did. Amen. And I was shocked to see what wasn't in there. And I was shocked to see what was in there. And yet today, I look at Catholics all over the world falling over themselves to worship their saints, their popes on their knees when the Eucharist is given to them during their masses. And you would think surely that, like I say, for Catholics, Christ should be more than enough for them, but he's not. And going back to the Old Testament, you would have thought that Jehovah would have been more than enough for the Jews. But tragically, he wasn't. Ezekiel 33, Ezekiel 33, look at verse 30, if you will. Also, thou son of man, the children of thy people still are talking against thee by the walls and in the doors of the houses. And speak one to another, every one to his brother, saying, Come, I pray you. And hear what is the word that cometh forth from the Lord. Apostate Jews mocking Ezekiel. Apostate Jews would mock Christ. And here you way back in the Old Testament, Ezekiel was written around 595 BC. And a couple of Sundays ago, we looked at Jeremiah, written 629 BC. I guess it's probably fair to say that if you think about the Old Testament, or if you read the Bible on a regular basis, you know there's really just two groups of people. The believers and the unbelievers, the saved and the lost. This is a very black and white book. You're either saved or unsaved. Also, thou son of man, the children of thy people, Jews, not Gentiles, still are talking against thee by the walls and in the doors of the houses. They're mocking him, gossiping like old women. And speak one to another, every one to his brother, saying, Come, I pray you, and hear what is the word that cometh forth from the Lord. What's he going to say now? Over in Mark chapter 3, it says how Christ's extended family thought he was mad. Elsewhere, when Paul first got saved, the Jews didn't believe it. In unbelief. And here they don't know what to make of Ezekiel. Because they've made a covenant, you see. Found over in Exodus 24, 32. They made a covenant with Gentiles. And on top of that, they were worshipping the gods of the Gentiles. The main sin in scripture, if you didn't know, is idolatry. Jehovah is a very patient God, puts up with all sorts of problems and situations and people's sins and rebellions. He's a very patient God. He's long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that how all, how all should come to repentance. Look at verse 31. And they come unto thee as a people cometh, and they sit before thee as my people, and they hear thy words, but they will not do them. For with their mouth they show much love, but the heart goeth after their covetousness. It's like Jesus. We shall have this man to reign over us. We have only one king, being Caesar. If you speak to Catholics about Christ's finished work on the cross, they don't want to hear it. They do not want to hear it. Catholics are one of the hardest groups of people to reach, as are Jews, because Jews historically have a covenant with Jehovah, and Catholics have maybe 80% right. It's always worth reminding ourselves that Catholics have about 80%, 80% right. They hold to the Trinity, they hold to the deity of Christ, they hold to the virgin birth, they hold to the miracles... They hold to the 26 books of the New Testament. They hold to the second coming. But that's about it. All those points, all those facts, all those beliefs won't save anybody. Because you were told over in James chapter 2 how even the devils believe that there's only one God. And they tremble. So just because they tick the right boxes doesn't mean they are saved. Yes, it's good. They hold to those beliefs. But it's not enough. If you are off on one point, if you get the atonement wrong, and they do, they don't believe in faith alone. Then, of course, everything else is knocked out. And they come unto thee... As the people cometh, and they sit before thee as my people, pretending to be Jews. Of course, they are Jews, but the hearts are far from the Lord. 
and they hear thy words in reference to Ezekiel, but they will not do them. Faith without works is dead. Works without faith is dead. It goes both ways. For with their mouth they show much love. They flatter the Lord publicly, but deny him in private. But their heart goeth after their covetousness, coveting, lusting. And we looked at that some weeks ago as we went through the Ten Commandments. 32. And lo, thou art unto them as a very lovely song of one that hath a pleasant voice and can play well on an instrument. For they hear thy words, but they do them not. It's almost as if they are saying how wonderful Ezekiel was, had a pleasant voice, was able to play an instrument, in a sense, like David would. But again, from Exodus 24, and I haven't finished in Ezekiel, Exodus 24, Thou shalt make no covenant with them, nor with their gods. And that's one of the reasons why we are against the ecumenical movement. Because the Catholics, although they have 80% right, 80% thats a pretty high figure, but that 20% that they have wrong, some major stuff there. They believe in praying uh, to dead people. They believe in crucifying Christ afresh. They don't believe in the rapture of the church. They don't believe that one is saved solely by one's faith in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Go back to the Old Testament, the Jews, yes, accepted that Jehovah was almighty God, but many times didn't accept him as the only God. They would put him on par with Baal and uh, other false gods, Moloch, they would sacrifice their children, literally, to pagan gods. And after three or four, five or six, seven or eight hundred years, Almighty God got sick and tired. Sick and tired of his people, giving him lip service when Christ arrived. Only a handful of people were really ready for him. Just a handful of people. And lo, thou art unto them as a very lovely song of one that hath a pleasant voice, and can play well on an instrument. For they hear thy words, but they do them not. Catholics don't believe in inspiration. They don't believe that the scripture is all that is needed. Yes, they accept that the New Testament, like I say, is 27 books. They accept that. But they say the magisterium of the church is the final authority. And when they say that, they put themselves above the scripture. And that's why Christians, if they're born again, have no business associating with Roman Catholics. If you speak to a typical Jew today, even a religious Jew, they will always and nearly always lean on the uh, Talmud. Yes, they accept the uh, Tanakh, the Old Testament, as being scripture, and praise the Lord for that, and we agree with the Jews on that, and we agree with the Catholics on the New Testament being 27 books, and for the Old Testament being 39 books. Of course, the Catholics have six or seven additional books from the Old Testament, referred to as the Apocryphal, uh, the Apocrypha, which of course we do not accept as Bible believers, but if you speak to Jews, even conservative Jews, they do give the Talmud a lot of respect, where of course the Talmud is only the words of men. This Jewish tradition. Look at verse 33 from Ezekiel 33. And when this cometh to pass, lo, it will come. Then shall they know that a prophet hath been among them. Go back to Exodus 24. So the main problem, and here the Lord is prophesying as to what will happen when the Jews go into the promised land. The main problem will be for the Jews just to rest in Jehovah. The same is true today. If you observe what goes on online, you see that many Christians... Many times will start off all very well, but after a while they get bored. They start to drift. I think it was uh, uh, Paris Reedhart. I may have his name wrong. He was a very popular American preacher. I think one of Gypsy Smith's friends. Anyway, a very popular American preacher back in the 1950s, 60s. And he got dry for a period of time and he was inquiring as to what he could do to get closer to the Lord. He did that famous sermon. Uh, shekels, fell over in... Uh, 
judges uh, concerning the priest that was paid. Uh, it may come back to me shortly. But basically, Paris, that's certainly his first name, started to drift and basically got into the charismatic movement. And once you get into the charismatic movement, you're ruined. Absolutely ruined. Exodus 24, 32 again. Thou shalt make no covenant with them, no agreement with them, nor with their gods. The moment you do that, you're finished, basically. The moment you throw your lot in with, and here, in a context, Gentiles, not God's people, and adopt their gods, not the one true God, you're finished, you're ruined. And that's why many Christians are going off the rails now. Many Christians, first of all, don't use the King James Bible as their final authority. And if you think of what uh, was said at the last, or the last few verses over in Judges, how every man uh, did that which was right in his own eyes. You can see, can't you, the problems. You start to follow your feelings. You stop walking with the Lord and you go back to the old man. Thou singular shalt make no covenant with them, nor with their gods. Go to Amos chapter 8. The Jews have always been a very blessed people. But unfortunately, historically, if you read the Bible on a regular basis, and I was able to finish the Bible with the Old Testament several days ago, there's a reoccurring theme, a very disturbing theme, how the Jews wanted more than Jehovah. And uh, for the Catholics, they want more than Christ. They want Mary. They want their mass. They want signs and wonders. They want their folk masses. They want their priest system. I mean, the list just goes on and on and on. And therefore, from Amos chapter 8, the Lord knows the beginning from the end. And he says this over in Amos chapter 8. Amos chapter 8, verse 11, for example. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord God, that I will send a famine in the land. Not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of the hearing of the words of the Lord. A time will come in the history of Israel, and in a sense we've got it now, where his words will be hard to find. And as a result of that, people are going to follow their own feelings. They're going to get involved with emotions like the charismatic movements or the Pentecostal movements. Or they're going to go to Marian shrines, for example. Or they're going to mess around with the Kabbalah, perhaps. Or the Kaaba as the Muslims uh, do, at least once in their lifetime. There's something about man where he's never satisfied. He always needs more, he always wants more. And here, behold, the days come, Amos 8, 11, saith the Lord God, that I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, not a physical famine, but of hearing the words of the Lord. We've got it right now. In the UK, morals are now up for grabs. I saw a story in the paper yesterday about a 17-year-old student in Aberdeenshire, which is in Scotland, got into an altercation with his teacher, and he filmed it on his mobile phone. No arguing, no cussing, no cursing, no blasphemy, very calm disagreement with his teacher. And basically, this 17-year-old boy, who's probably studying for his O-levels or A-levels, was arguing very politely, sitting down, how there's only two genders. Just two genders, not three, not four, not five, just two genders. And this teacher didn't like that. And basically, this teacher started to reprimand this 17-year-old student about how he mustn't discriminate against other people. And the boy, very calm, very polite, said, I'm not discriminating anybody against anything. There's only two genders. And of course, if you are a man, it's Y chromosome. And if you are a woman, it's X chromosome. That's all there is to it. That's basic biology. But because this boy... Young boy was a white boy, non-religious, and the teacher, a white teacher, non-religious, he had no qualms in 
disciplining this boy in front of the entire classroom. But imagine if it had been a Muslim boy saying to his teacher, but the Quran says teacher, Allah says teacher, Muhammad says teacher, and starts to quote the Quran. Wouldn't that teacher be tiptoeing around the subject? Wouldn't that teacher be picking his words very carefully? That boy was discriminated. That boy was picked on. First of all, because the words of the Lord, Amos 8, 11, are, in this time and uh, era, hard to find, especially if you don't have the King James Bible. And secondly, he was picked on because of the colour of his skin. I'm convinced of it. I am completely convinced of it. Had he been an Asian child or black child, a Muslim or of another background, questioning the nonsensical uh, belief how there are more than just two genders, the teacher would have been very careful. In fact, the teacher would have just turned around and probably just walked away. That boy has been suspended for questioning, wasn't arguing, wasn't raising his voice, wasn't violent, very calmly questioning this ridiculous belief how there are more than just two genders. He's been suspended. There are kids in this country that are cussing, cursing, blaspheming, fighting, pushing, spitting at teachers. No one says a word about that. Very few of those children are being suspended. There are children in this school that are getting other children pregnant. They're not suspended, are they? They are rarely suspended, and even rarer for the police to be called. And yet this boy, going against the political wills of a minority of minorities, has been suspended. Ridiculous. Days come, saith the Lord God, that I will send, that I will send a famine in the land. Not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. In the context, Israel, in the context, Old Testament. And that's one of the reasons why when Jesus arrived the first time, only a handful of people were ready for him. Just a handful of people because they've been living in a famine for 400 years from Malachi to Matthew. Jehovah hadn't spoken to anyone. In fact, here's a thought for you. From Adam to Abraham is roughly 2,000 years. From Abraham to Christ is roughly 2,000 years. From Christ to the present is roughly 2,000 years. Say 6,000 years of history. But here's the thing. From Adam to Abraham... And from Abraham to Moses, there isn't one book written. So for roughly 2,000 years, 2,500 years, mankind doesn't have a book to read, like from the Bible. In other words, there isn't one book written to the world concerning how creation came into being, Jehovah's covenants with mankind. It would fall to Moses to write Genesis, obviously, and the first five books of the Bible, but for 2,500 years... Jehovah hasn't spoken, or Jehovah hasn't inspired, Jehovah wouldn't inspire anyone, anywhere to write anything, until Moses came on the scene. And even then, it's right at the end of Moses' life. So you've got, what, 2,500 years? Yes, they had prophets, visions, miracles, and people like Melchizedek raised up, and Enoch and others to preach to them, but there's nothing in writing for 2,500 years. And on top of that, it would take... Over a thousand years for the entire Old Testament to be written. For the New Testament, it would take around 60 years, 60 years, to write the entire New Testament. So there's a famine back in biblical times. There's a famine today. That teacher should be ashamed of himself. He needs to go on a training course, a diversity course. His bigotry, his uh, bad attitude has resulted in in a... 17-year-old boy being suspended, bullied, victimized, harassed for questioning how many genders there are. Again, if you are a man, it's Y chromosome. And if you are a woman, it's X chromosome. That'll be considered hate crime soon, no doubt. Look at verse 12. 
and they shall wander from sea to sea, and from the north even to the east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, and shall not find it. He has eyes to see, but cannot see. He has ears to hear, but cannot hear. If you really study the Lord Jesus Christ and the four Gospels, the vast majority of those alive when he came the first time had no idea who he was, what he was saying, didn't believe on him. It says over in, I think it's Luke 18, from memory, when the Son of Man comes back, will there be faith on the earth? And the insinuation is that there'll be very little faith on the earth. Most people, by the time of the Lord's arrival, would have thrown in the tower, would have thrown in their lot with the Antichrist, taken the mark of the beast, surrendered to him. And of course, that is also picked up in Revelation uh, 13, how the names were never written in the Lamb's Book of Life. But one more time. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord God, verse 11, that I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread, not a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. The words are there, incidentally, but they won't hear the words of the Lord. Back in the Old Testament, prophets spoke. Holy men of God, holy men of God spake. They're moved by the Holy Ghost. They wouldn't hear the words of the Lord. And when those words were written down, they wouldn't be taken seriously. That's why the Catholics go back to the magisterium of the church. That's why Jews, religious and non-religious, go to the Talmud for extra light, so-called. And they shall wander from sea to sea, and from the north even to the east. They shall run to and fro, to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, and shall not find it. Why are they looking in all the right? They are looking in all the wrong places, basically. Going back to Ezekiel 33, 32, 33. Go back to Exodus. So we are living in a spiritual dearth at the moment, the words of the Lord are available, but people don't want to receive them. Most people have overthrown the Bible. That teacher who challenged his students publicly wouldn't have dared have done that had the boy been an Asian or black child, a Muslim, or from another ethnic background. But because the boy was white, because the boy didn't have any support behind him, because the boy is fair game, basically he was humiliated. Totally humiliated in front of his peers. The video has gone viral. The boy's been suspended. And yet, in the UK, there have been hundreds of parents in the Midlands outside of a primary school for weeks now protesting about LGBT lessons. It's called No Outsiders. The press have been tiptoeing around it because, again, what can they say? They wouldn't dare call these Muslims bigots, would they? But that boy in Aberdeenshire, he's a bigot, apparently. He's got to get with it. He's too narrow-minded. And yet hundreds, and I mean hundreds of parents, protesting for weeks and weeks and weeks. Outside of the school, there's been high court injunctions. And this group in the Midlands have been able to raise money. They've raised thousands of pounds to go to the high court in London to challenge the injunction. I mean, this is incredible. But 32 again, thou, Jews, Old Testament, thou, Christians, New Testament. This is trans-testimonial. Thou shalt make no covenant with them. Relevant for the Jews, Old Testament. Relevant for Christians, New Testaments. Nor with their gods. Of course, in reference to gods, or gods here, is in reference to spiritual gods. Paul says over in 1 Corinthians how there are gods many and lords many, but to us there's only one Lord. So here Jehovah realizes and recognizes that there's always been false gods. Satan is called the god of this world but for today you've got materialistic gods you've got vips superstars celebrities a lot of people get caught up in all that nonsense 33 
they shall not dwell in thy land, lest they make thee sin against me. For if thou serve their gods, it will surely be a snare unto thee. So you ask yourself this question, but what harm is it doing? If I sin in a particular way, I'm only sinning in a particular way, or if I do this or that with him or her, it only involves me and her, or him and her. But here, your sin is against God. This gets overlooked sometimes. One of the reasons why the Ten Commandments is so important is because when you sin against mankind, or when you sin against yourself, it's not just yourself that you are sinning against, or mankind that you are sinning against. You are also sinning against God. But most religions don't teach that, but the Bible does. Look at it again, 33. They shall not dwell in thy land, in reference to Gentiles, 32. Going back to, don't be yoked up with them. Why is that? Lest they make thee sin against me. And that's what would take place decade after decade, century after century. For if thou serve their gods, if thou serve their gods, it will surely be a snare unto thee. Go to Psalm chapter 12. So as always, there's a lot going on when you read these verses. The main problem seems to have been unbelief. Going back to when you come to the Lord, Hebrews chapter 11, you have to believe that he is and diligently seek for him. It's not just enough to say, well, there's only one God. That's good enough for me and tick the box. James chapter 2. You have to appropriate the atonements. You have to put your faith into action as well. The words of the Lord are pure words. That's precious. The words of the Lord are pure words. A silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times, Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek, Old Syriac, Old Latin, Old German, English. Jehovah will speak to people using words. For the Old Testament, for 2,500 years, he would speak to people in an audible sense. Enoch would prophesy about the second coming, not the first coming. Those words were written down in Jude, but for 2,500 years, make that 4,500 years, his words are not written down until Jews wrote those words down many years later. So the words of the Lord have always been around. God spoke to Adam and Eve in the garden, spoke to the serpents in the garden, spoke to Abraham, spoke to all of the patriarchs, spoke to Moses and Aaron. So man has no alibi when it comes to the great white throne judgment. Jehovah has always been audible, always been quick and ready and willing to communicate with people, but they don't want to hear what he says. The Jews had the words of the Lord during the time that Moses wrote uh, the book of Exodus especially. But strictly speaking, for 2,500 years, there's no written word. The Jews have no written accounts. They got it from their fathers. Abraham spoke to Isaac. Isaac spoke to Jacob. Jacob spoke to his sons. And his sons went into Egypt for 400 something, over 400 years as slaves to Pharaoh. And they would share accounts of what it was like back in the days of the patriarchs, and then eventually after a 400-year period of silence, Moses arrives. And then eventually after a 400-year period of silence, Messiah arrives. Messiah sets his people free. Moses sets his people free. Words of the Lord are pure words. As silver tried in a furnace of earth, they're going to come from the earth. All of his words, all of God's words, as far as the prophets were concerned, were given to people on the earth. The Bible didn't just fall out of heaven as the Muslims believe, as far as the Quran is concerned. Men on the earth wrote the word of God, and as I say, over many, many years, it would be preserved. It's been purified seven times. It was purified during the days of Ezekiel, 
to no avail for the most part. Most of the Jews during his lifetime had no interest in what he had to say. The Lord's words were given to Jeremiah. And we looked at Jeremiah 44 a couple of weeks ago. And they too, those words uh, also fell and deaf ears. Words of the Lord are pure words, a silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. So the Jews had it. They had the words in Hebrew and Aramaic, uh, the Gentile world. First century had the words of the Lord in Greek. Then it went into Old Syriac, which would have been accessible to the uh, Arabs around the time of Muhammad. Then it goes into Old Latin, people like Pilate and some of the church leaders like Jerome and Origen as well. And others, they had access to the words of the Lord. Old German, Martin Luther, of course, right up until English, the language of the last days. So there's no excuse for anyone at any time to be in darkness. There was no excuse for the Jews to violate Exodus 24, 32 and 33. But of course, for them, back in those days, Jehovah wasn't enough for them. For the Catholics, Christ is not enough for them. And for the Muslims... They give Christ lip service. They call him a prophet, but they won't go beyond that. Look at verse 7. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. So the words are pure, verse 6, inspired, 2 Timothy chapter 3. And they are preserved forever. And I want to say all these things this morning because when the great white throne comes around, there'll be no excuse, absolutely no excuse uh, for anyone to... Uh, be able to say they hadn't access to the words. Yeah, Second Timothy chapter three, Second Timothy chapter three, verses fifteen, sixteen, and seventeen. But when I look at Psalm twelve, thou shalt keep them, O Lord, and the aniseed is on the words of the Lord. Verse six, thou, you alone, shalt preserve them. But like our salvation, He preserves us. We are sealed unto the day of redemption. Preserve them from this generation forever. He will preserve those that receive him by faith and keep us preserved. Eight, the wicked walk on every side when the vilest men are exalted. Go back to the book of Exodus. This has been a five-week study, incidentally, looking at just 33 verses. Thou shalt make no covenants with them, and yet they would, nor with their gods, and they did. They shall not dwell in thy land, and they did, lest they make thee sin against me, and they did. For if thou serve their gods, and they would, it will surely be a snare unto thee. So I'm going to say this, that if you are a Christian, and you don't hold to the King James Bible being preserved, inspired, and you use different uh, different versions, I'm going to suggest this, that technically you, you are on uh, precarious ground. Uh, on top of that, you are probably going to be also into conditional security. Uh, you may have your eschatology all back to front. And you're probably going to be into the holiness movement as well. You're going to be uh, going back and forth as to what a person should be doing and how a person should be living. On top of that, the gods that you are worshipping, 32, 33, not in a spiritual sense. I won't go beyond and say Christians are worshipping, for example, false gods like Baal, Ashtoreth, or other false, fake gods back in biblical times. But you could be worshipping materialistic gods name it and claim it want to be wealthy want to be healthy and top of that you may end up becoming a lordship salvationist back under the law there's always many ways to look at these verses you've got doctrinal verse you've got a doctrinal reading a historical reading a prophetical reading a spiritual reading as far as i'm concerned 32 33 
and also from verse 13, is timeless. These verses are timeless for people today, people during the tribulation, and people during the millennial reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. But be careful if you are a saved person and you don't use the King James Bible, because the gods that you may be worshipping now could be the prosperity gospel, it could be lordship salvation, it could be using multiple translations, will become a snare unto you. You become snared, ensnared by such a pool, such a environment to be exposed to. And if you're not careful, you will have no peace inside of you. But it is interesting when you think about the Jews historically, from Adam to Abraham, Abraham to Christ, uh, Christ to the present, how much light has always been in a oral sense. Also, God's law is written on our hearts, uh, the Ten Commandments on our hearts so there's just no way to get around it there's no excuse there's no alibi and yet what do people do they say well, that's your opinion that's just your interpretation uh, you may think it's this or you may think it's that but we think it's this we think it's that the majority of scholars don't agree with you on this the majority of scholars believe the king james has errors faults uh, the majority of jews reject jesus the majority of catholics reject faith alone uh, who cares about the majority who cares about the majority the majority have always been wrong and that's what ezekiel found out to his uh, pain and grief, that's what Jeremiah found out, the weeping prophet. And that's what Moses found out. Later on, he will say, Lord, just blot my name out of your book. I'm through with this, pe uh, with this people. I can't go on any longer. They are stiff-necked people. And it came pretty near. Later on in, uh, in uh, Exodus, the Lord was moments away to just eradicating, eliminating all of Israel, and starting all over again with Moses, which is what he would do with Christ. Christ comes the first time, sets his people free, sets captivity captive. Moses comes the first time, sets captivity captive. It's a hard slog for Moses. He gets worn down. His brother is into idolatry, which we'll look at in a few weeks' time. Jesus comes the first time. He works closely with John the Baptist. It's hard for him too. John the Baptist is clashing with Herod while at the same time praying for Herod. John the Baptist loses, uh, loses his head, picture of those in the tribulation that will be beheaded for not taking the mark of the beast. Aaron almost is destroyed for his sin against Jehovah, but Jehovah spares Aaron, shows him mercy, a picture of grace, a picture for a carnal Christian who continues to sin, never repents, and yet arrives at the judgment seat with nothing to show for his life. The Bible is a very fascinating book, it's a two-edged sword, Hebrews chapter 4. How you feel about it will determine what you get out of it. If you come to it humbled, if you fear the word of the Lord, if you believe that the words of the Lord have been preserved, you will get a great blessing. But if you come to it arrogant, puffed up, indifferent, intolerant, you'll find nothing. And that's one of the reasons, one more time, or one final time, why incidents like that student in Scotland has made the news, has gone global, it's a humiliating story to read about of all the stories that we could be reading about and speaking about in the 21st century. We are reading about a student being stigmatized, ridiculed, punished for daring to question how many genders there are. And like I say, that teacher should be ashamed of himself, a white middle class man for punishing a white, perhaps middle class boy, I don't know, for saying only two genders and that teacher if he wanted it, has words, has access to the words of the Lord. The words are here today, but it's my experience that people like that teacher don't want the words of the Lord 
And it's a throwback to judges, how every man did that, which was right in his own eyes. And when you start to do that, society just breaks down and it just gets worse and worse and worse. And the name I was looking for was Paris Reedhead, who gave that very famous sermon, 10 shekels and a shirt, 10 shekels and a shirt. And basically he started to dry up, wanted something else and got involved with the charismatic movements. And he was very close to, I think it was Harry Ironside and another preacher whose name escapes me. And he got involved with the baptism of the Holy Ghost, which doesn't actually have any legitimacy in scripture, but basically he wanted something more. And, uh, this is the problem, people start to become dry. Christ is no longer enough for them. They want something else, and therefore Paris. Reedhead, like I say, went back under the law. 